Hi, I'm Andrew, and I'm a librarian for Denver Public Libraries. This year, for National Book Month, we want you to pick a new title, read it, tell somebody about it, and then share what you're reading and if you liked it or not on social media. Hi, I'm Dodie, and I'm an adult services librarian at Denver Public Library at the Central Branch downtown. One of my favorite things is our personalized reading list. You fill out a form online, you just go to denverlibrary.org slash reads, we'll get you a list of eight to 10 recommendations of books that you'll be dying to read in October. You want something a little easier? Tune into our YouTube channel and watch our Friday five at five book buzzes. For even more fun, come into one of our branches and talk to one of our librarians and we will find you just the perfect something for National Book Month. And if books aren't your thing, we also have plenty of movies and music for you to choose from, something for everyone. Denver needs your help. Our recycling rate is below average by a lot. About 75% of what we throw away is recyclable. What can you do, Denver? Well, for starters, you can recycle two more pounds a week. If everyone in Denver recycled two more pounds a week, we would save more than 150,000 barrels of oil, 585,000 trees, and keep more than 57,000 tons of recyclable material out of the landfills. It's only two pounds. Reuse, reduce, recycle. established by charter and receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's annual comprehensive financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien. call the October 20th meeting of the Independent Audit Committee to order and ask Edie to take the roll, please. Jack Blumenthal? Here. Lorreen Knapp? Here. Rudy Payan? Here. Tim O'Brien? Here. Uh, we have a quorum present. Uh, first item on the agenda for action is approval of the September 15th meeting minutes. Is there a motion to approve the minutes? So moved. Second. Second. Thank you. Uh, any discussion? All in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? All right, next item is a presentation of the 2023 audit plan. Um, consistent with the law, the auditor did release uh, at the 2023 audit plan on Monday, the third Monday of October. Uh, and I'm gonna ask Don to go through it. I don't know if you're gonna Kind of discuss the process a little bit, the whole risk assessment process. That might be helpful. Yeah. Okay. Will Thank do. you. All right. Well, thank you, Auditor O'Brien. Good morning, Audit Committee members and um, viewers. Um, as Auditor O'Brien said, we completed our 2023 audit plan, so I thought I'd go over some of the activities that we used to develop the plan and then talk a little bit about um, some of the audits that we're doing and the plan's coverage throughout the city. 
So to build the plan, we are consistently assessing um, risk in a variety of ways throughout the year. We consider the size complexity of operations, um, funding of operations and programs, prior audit recommendation implementation, and the, the time that we last audited that area or program in the city. And then we also conduct interviews with city leadership and elected officials to understand risks that they face or that they see throughout the city based on their role and then um, gather risks while completing audits throughout the year each time that we do an audit. So we complete an information, information, or an information technology risk assessment as well um, and continuously monitor those technology changes throughout the year. As we know, uh, co technology is constantly changing, so we wanna make sure that we're staying current with those changes throughout the year. And other things that we consider are risks in the region and the nation. And we just went through a pandemic that really affected us all, not only in the nation, but really worldwide. So paying attention to those kinds of events, um, risks captured by our peer audit organizations, equity risks, and um, the quality control of internal systems throughout the city. And um, another activity that factors into our risk assessment is our continuous auditing team. They use audit analytics methods to directly connect with city data systems. So that allows us to use the entire data set rather than sampling from that population. So it really gives us a, a good um, pulse on the risk. We're we are able to automate um, and do ongoing analysis of that data. So we take a look at that throughout the year as well and consider what risks those pose um, to the city. Um, the ongoing analysis, we use that um, to test the controls of the city's financials and operational systems. And then um, that information is also helpful to inform risk in other audits that we are conducting throughout the year and then also informs us on audits that we may need to conduct throughout the year. And then we also com uh, consider the community concerns. The office receives information from the community throughout the year so we pay attention to those concerns and you'll see some of those in our plan like residential permitting, shelters and affordable housing. And then we also pay attention to the emerging risks um, throughout the year. And another thing that we do for each of the audits and throughout the year is we analyze the 311 data where um, residents call in and, and have complaints or concerns. So we take a look at that data and then we also um, try to understand those issues and incorporate those where necessary and where we see the risk, risk level rising. So you can, you can learn a little bit more about what we do to do that on pages 10 and 11 of the audit plan. Um, and it'll just give you a, few, a little bit more information um, about that process. So on pages three through six, the audit plan details um, the audit projects that we'll be focusing on in 2023. So we will carry forward some important work from 2022 like homeless encampments, affordable housing, police operations, uh, child welfare placement, and the Great Hall construction project out at the Denver International Airport. So, um, so we will continue um, focusing efforts in the areas of construction, contracts and agreements, uh, grant compliance, financial audits, and of course cybersecurity, as well as following up on the audits that we did complete in 2022 to see if there's any residual risk um, that we need to pay attention to for the coming audit plan. So I'd just like to highlight a few of our 2023 projects um, that we're going to be focusing on. So we have paramedic response time. So we plan to look at response times and how they compare to industry standards. And is the city really responding uh, timely to those calls? 
And then we'll take a look at the division of small business opportunity. Yeah. So really looking for the compliance with the requirements and goals for businesses owned by people of color, women, and other disadvantaged populations, as well as um, how well they're monitoring those goals. And then looking at the bidding process to award you know, that kind of work to those organizations. And then of course, we wanna take a look at the election, elections division. Um, next month, we'll be, we'll be going to the polls. So we're interested in really looking at the security of those voting systems. So that will be part of our cybersecurity work that we'll be doing um, in the coming year. And then fleet management, um, that one we haven't been there in a while. We, the last audit we did in fleet management was in 2011. So just through our risk interviews this year and um, some of the audits that we've been conducting, we've, we've seen some risks rising to the surface for fleet management this year. And then um, the last one I'll cover with you is the on-call and professional services contracts. Uh, we just wanna look at how the city procures and renews these contracts um, with the on-call professional and professional services vendors. Um, again, that, that was some things that through our risk interviews and some of the audits that we're doing kind of rises to the level of, of us taking a look at those, those things. And then I just wanted to cover uh, quick, uh, with you the broad audit coverage that we'll be having throughout the city. So we're covering multiple agencies and departments and programs. So we'll be in public safety, uh, areas of finance, public health, economic development, the clerk and recorder, the Office of Human Resources, transportation and infrastructure, just to name a few. Um, so the, the slide up here will give you a, a, an idea of the broad coverage that we'll be uh, taking on throughout the city for the 2023 audit plan. Yes. Don, any, <clears throat> any uh, <clears throat> plans to look at 16th Street renovation? The 16th Street? Yes. Um, I think we can. Um, I'm just asking the question. Just yeah, those are things that we year. consider some of under the Under construction. The construction, yep, under yeah. that umbrella, we'll take it, we'll get, <clears throat> list of the capital projects throughout the city and at Denver International Airport as well. And then we will, we will use that list to, to look at some projects yeah. that we can uh, do in, a, in addition to the ones that you'll see named specifically on the plan. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Don? Yes. Um, uh, I, I have one question on the uh, uh, paramedic response mm -hmm. issue. Um, it, it's my understanding either and I don't know whether I got it from television or talking to some people, that there's a number of years ago, there was, whenever uh, an ambulance gets called for, a fire truck goes out. And the issue as I understand it is who has what kind of training and who can do what and uh, I believe there was some controversy a number of years ago in terms of who could do what. And if, if I can suggest when you look at the response that you incorporate the paramedic response, especially with the fact that we have a new head of uh, uh, health and hot, you know, uh, health and hospital, mm -hmm. uh, that we incorporate that in the scope for appropriateness. We might have to think about that. That's, that's broadening the scope quite a bit, I think, but. Okay, well, let, let I, I, I'm just throwing it out for consideration sure. and I'll leave it at that. Right. I mean, ultimately, whoever gets there fastest and gets the person 
you know, stabilized and hopefully to a hospital or other care facility, the sooner that happens, the more likely they are to survive whatever the incident was. It's all about the time. I Abs think. Absolutely. And I would mention that if you, as you read these little capsule descriptions, it's a fairly broad statement, and what we have to do is really take that and narrow it down to something that's more manageable uh, to conduct the audit. But uh, we'll take that input and see what we can do. And that's all. Uh, that was all <laughs> the only reason yeah. I said that while you're there. Yes, yes, absolutely. I have another one. Yes. In terms of looking, I just noticed residential permitting. Yeah. Saw the article in the Denver Very Post the other day. <clears throat> it seems like that's really garnishing a lot of publicity and stuff. The backlog, the staffing, you know, the lack of staffing, things mm -hmm. of that nature. And it's a lot of money. It is. Uh, are we going to be looking at the is there a possibility, or, or what's, where does that stand in relationship with the other audits, if we're going to do that? Yeah, we will be looking at the backlog, and we will be looking at the delays. Okay. Um, and, and you're right, it does cost a lot of money. You know, if you're, if you're someone trying to put a deck on your house and you're continually waiting, you know, there's, there's costs associated with that. And then there's also costs associated with contractors when they have to wait. So we'll be looking at, you know, timeliness of inspections, things like that, and what are those factors causing those delays? And, and we have learned that they are, you know, they are short staffed. They're trying to get staffed up. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but it is an area of concern that we've gotten from other agencies within the city and from, you know, residents calling in uh, about the backlog and, and the time it takes to, to get a permit or to get an inspection. So those will be things we'll be considering as Thank we do you, our Mom. risk assessment for that. I'm glad you You need I'm a case study. I'm in the middle of it right now. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and and even if you don't need one, she would like to have it. <laughs> um, is it appropriate you want or do you have more to tell us that you and then you want questions or you want um, to ask Well, I just right have now? one more thing to note is, you know, this is a living document. So, we're going to respond to risks throughout the year. So, just because it's not on the plan doesn't mean it may not be something that we look out throughout the year because we want to make sure we're addressing risk timely and as it occurs instead of waiting a year or two you know down the road so um, that was just the last thing that I wanted to share with you <laughs> well Don I related to that I have one more question because it came in, in today's Denver Post it has to do with the Denver Museum having returned back X number of pieces for like four million dollars will we be looking into that as well or is that's something aside right now or future I'm just curious yeah I, I don't know if the Denver Museum of Art, but that is the Museum of Art. The, the, the Art Museum. Oh, the Art Museum. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah but uh, and, and the Art Museum will be in our follow-up audits since we did an audit of the Art yeah. Museum. Yeah, we still I have follow-up. Yeah. So I remember it, it yeah. was their inventory yeah, system. But what occurred here is something that occurred many, many years ago. Correct. Is uh, a result of having procured the art from uh, a vendor who had in fact stolen it. Mm -hmm. And so now it, it's coming to the heads of returning it. So it's kind of like uh, that horse has been out of the barn, I'm going to guess for three to six years. So we will be doing the follow-up on that audit that we did uh, previously. So if we see risks that arise from that follow-up work, then that's something that we can consider for the, the I just coming plans. I'm curious about the impact, if any, 
Yeah. You know, I mean, they had to return the pieces. I, I, I don't know what finding there is, to be quite honest with you, mm -hmm. in terms of internal controls or anything of that nature. Right. That's yeah, I don't know, I don't know how at. you plan for determining if it's stolen. I'm sure there's some things that they could do to make sure that it's yeah. a valid piece that's owned, you know, authentically. And maybe vetting the the donors a little bit better, right. but you don't want to do it. Well, you know. Well, you it, it, it wasn't a case of the donors. The, the, no, the real, the real problem with this kind of thing is that the art museum procures art from dealers, and so do other art museums throughout the world. And so, yeah, I don't know how well this person was vetted, and he, and this person could have been very well wetted, vetted. Uh, I don't believe that, my, my guess would be that there are other museums who, across the United States at least, who suffered from the same kind of situation where the procuring party stole it, mm -hmm. and then you go through this thing. Right. So, I, you know, but. Yeah, so if we that, see that's what that, that was about. Through follow up, then we'll yeah, the audit problem will be hard to define. Mm -hmm. The audit problem will be hard to define, but I, you know, there's something there. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Yeah, you bet. Well, if you recall, the art museum gave us very limited access to that inventory uh, information. And if we don't have a lot of implementation in the follow-up, then it's definitely going to go back on our risk radar as something that we need to go back in and look at again because they didn't implement the recommendations. So, um, so I have a couple questions. Um, the, the, um, uh, on the voting systems, does, it, the, as I read this, it, it seems um, that that is focused uh, solely on the, the day of voting and the, I don't know what, I'm not sure what voting system mm -hmm. means as opposed to voting, you know, machine or in person. But since so much, well, since it's 100% mail-in ballot mm -hmm. um, received anyway, I was wondering if you are going to do any um, analysis of the security of the ballots from, you know, cradle to grave. Mm -hmm. um, we may consider that. Um, right now we're focusing on the cybersecurity within the systems themselves to make sure they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're safeguarded and can't be hacked. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't take a look at the processes leading up to information going into the system, whether it's inputting the ballots. I know they're getting new, new machines, uh, so we want to make sure those are secure. Well, in the beginning of the process of receiving the ballot is sending the ballot out, and how how and and when that's done and and tracked for receipt or not re not being received, right? I think might be interesting. Ballot tracking, yeah. basically, yeah. from cradle to grave. Yeah. Well, s for instance, it's it's sporadic as you receive ballots. Like mm -hmm. some people in my neighborhood have received ballots, some of us haven't. So yes, I haven't like, received well, mine yet. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely take that um, into consideration. You know? Somebody knew. <laughs> but anyway, that's just a thought. Um, if I could add one thing. It's worth noting that the voting system is not connected to the Internet. Correct. Yeah. Right. That's, as I sit the, as an election judge, There's still plenty of technology. I'm right. I'm plugged into a landline. Yeah. But it's not connected to the Internet. That's a secure feature. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think your point about, you know, 
control totals. I mean, what went out, what came in, all that, yeah. those and are how important. many times? Because they reissue. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, could you also elaborate a little bit on on the category of on call contractors? I don't. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not clear on what all that. Who all that would entail? Well, that would entail. So, for example, they could have a pool of contractors that they vetted, and and they're they're just sitting there waiting for work. So, if you if you have an emergency situation, then you would you would go to your on call pool, and you would take from that pool of contractors instead of trying to start from the procurement process at the very beginning. And and as far as emergencies or or using that, mm -hmm. would that be more public works or where? What? It could be public works. It could be um, the airport. Mm. It could be you parks. Know, yeah, parks, okay. where they would have a need to have somebody at a moment's notice, so then they would have that pool of contractors waiting. You know, if we were to have a snowstorm tonight, it would take <laughs> down a lot of trees, and they would put out a task order to a number of people that are on-call contractors that would do the tree removal. Okay. Um, okay. All right. That, that's helpful. Thank you. I was okay. And the airport yeah, uses that, and uh, uh, transportation uses that quite yes. a bit. And we actually have a pool of contractors that we use, too, for cybersecurity. Is there uh, a order to the in, in the presentation here of the audits? I think I think we ordered it that way to try and like we want to start with those and go down the it, list. Did we? Okay. Yeah, like an oh, order of well, priority and importance. Yeah. I like the ones on the <laughs> at, at the front <laughs> or the back. These over here. Yeah. <laughs> so the ones you'll see at the front are really some of our rollover audits that we're looking at right now, like affordable housing, uh, child welfare placement, um, the Great Hall out at uh, the airport. So those we want to make sure we, you know we get finished up before we start anything else. So we're trying to put them in kind of the order we want to complete them this year. Although there are some groupings in the in the back of specific types of audits, grants, um, other contracts that are ongoing, so oh, those I are see. priorities as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where we have some variability to kind of pick some of those. I mean, like Rudy mentioned, the 16th Street project and things that you know we have a little bit more variability to pick mm -hmm. as you know as we go. Mm -hmm. uh, very interested in the homeless encampments. I mean, I, you see it all over, and I. It's just a, you know, it's above my pay grade, but it's, 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 it's a problem, you know, and I just don't know. It's complex. Yeah, it's very complex, no, you know, buying hotels. A lot of money and, mm -hmm. going yeah. toward it. Toward exactly. It allocated for it. Yeah. So, that, I think it's, I think you really nailed a I lot do of too. the issues I like, in the city. I've read so it before. It I'm looks pleased. good. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. I think it's the right, the right issues you're addressing. I really do. Thank you. And uh, the only one that I'd like to just make one comment about is the cybersecurity one, in that um, it, it's my view that in a lot of respects our country is at war with the Russians, and that a number of mm -hmm. municipal systems have been hit with cybersecurity issues that uh, an elevated number recently um, that it's believed some of that's coming from Russia. And I'm glad to see it on the list, but you might want to think about the order of this in that light. And you've got, I, I've got to say that 
um, in having read the list and the whole the whole business before coming here this morning, I've got to say that I am just uh, really impressed with the uh, with what that list is. Not only how large it is, but also with the obvious uh, thought uh, that went into the preparation of the list. Thank you. I appreciate that. Totally agree. Thank you. Couldn't have said it better. <laughs> For a change. <laughs> and that's my fault, not yours. <laughs> All right. Any other questions on the audit plan? I look forward to executing it and bringing it to you in the coming months. Uh, the next item we have is general business. Our next audit committee meeting will be here in the Par Widener room, 9 a.m. on Thursday, November the 17th. Um, with that, <clears throat> our next item is to go into executive session to really talk about the audit of the federal programs that's being conducted by an independent auditor. And I would like to ask for a motion to go into executive session. It is an ongoing audit, so we're not it's not finished yet. I so move. Second. Is there any discussion? All in favor say aye. Aye. Any opposed? Okay, we are in executive session. Because my parents told me I have to be responsible. Because my first coach told me, you can do this. Because my teacher helped me see the choices. Because my coach treated me like everybody else. Because my boss showed me how to do a good job. Because a mentor believed in my potential. Is why I am where I am today. I'm swimming faster than I ever dreamed I could. I discovered that I could work as an artist. I led my high school team to two championships. I am a valuable employee. I have a career that I am passionate about. I will be whatever I want to be. What can you do? What can you do? Like all young people, youth with disabilities should grow up expecting to work and succeed. For more information, visit whatcanyoudocampaign.org. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our session. We're going to be talking about the multiple pathways to recovery. Um, we have three highly qualified panelists today. I want to introduce myself. I'm Jenny Hill. I work with Denver Department of Public Health and Environment. I am the houseless health policy analyst. Next month, I am going to celebrate 23 years of recovery and resilience. So I'd first 
like to introduce our panelists and the organizations they represent. Unfortunately, two of our panelists could not join us today, but we have three individuals and their communities are doing great work. So the first um, person I want to introduce is Emily Burks. She is the Colorado Program Manager for Young People in Recovery. Um, each of our panelists is going to take a couple minutes to introduce um, their organizations and the work they do in the community. So Emily, take it away. Yeah, okay. Hi everyone, my name's Emily Burks. I'm with Young People in Recovery. I'm the Colorado Program Manager for our great grassroots organization. We uh, were born in Denver, but we are now nationwide from coast to coast. Uh, what we at Young People in Recovery do is promote a multiple pathways to recovery um, approach through peer-to-peer -peer services. And so we're kind of a two-fold organization. Our primary function um, is chapters. And so what those chapters do is uh, they're likely, they're all run by peers, uh, people in recovery uh, or allies to recovery. So a lot of like family members um, to people in recovery or uh, people living with substance use disorder. So we offer all recovery meetings which um, welcome people from all different pathways, whether that be 12-step, faith-based, uh, medication-supported, whatever that is, we welcome and encourage everyone to come to these meetings and to discuss their multiple pathways and to share their experiences so that other people can learn from them together and strengthen their own recoveries in doing so. Uh, we also offer pro-social events, so um, healthy, safe, sober events for people to come together in recovery and fellowship. Uh, we do um, workshops that promote different um, objectives and also um, advocacy work on local and national level as well. So a lot of great things that our chapters are doing. The other side of our organization is a life skills class that we offer um, in partnership with a couple different uh, judicial districts here in the Denver metro area and across the country as well as different treatment organizations as well. So those are peer-led life skills courses that we um, educate our peers on um, to live healthy, self-directed lives in recovery. So that's what we do. Thank you, Emily. So our next panelist is Raquel Garcia. She is the creator and CEO of Hard Beauty. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I don't need to, it feels weird to be applauded. I feel like I just want to start it off. My name is Raquel Garcia, and first and foremost, and always, I am a woman in long-term recovery. And what that means for me is that I have not had a drink or misused a prescription in over 12 and a half years. Thanks. It's my greatest accomplishment. Um, and from that, everything else has grown from that single decision. Um, I also am the daughter of someone who struggled with substance use disorders. My husband is also somebody who struggled with substance use disorders, and I was able to maintain my sobriety for eight years while he stayed active. Um, so I'm huge on family support. I own Hard Beauty. We are the first funded virtual recovery community in Colorado. 
Um, we have a foundation as well. We have our first in-person facility inside Castle Rock with a second one going in Colorado Springs in January. We have 24 coaches across the state of Colorado um, and we hold a beautiful space online called Discover Your Recovery where we offer active paid opportunities for our coaches as well as the community to come plug in. We were born out of COVID. I got sober in Palmer Lake, Colorado, <laughs> population 2,300. How many of color? There were five. And so not only that, I know what it's like to live in the rural communities. I'm also a woman of color and have raised children in recovery. So quite a dynamic story. Um, but I love what we do in the state of Colorado. I love the opportunities we have for professional development to professionalize this so that other folks can do this work. I really love the community connection. Folks like Darren, folks like young people in recovery. Um, really blessed to do the work. And July 1st, I was... Um, given the opportunity to serve on the Behavioral Health Advisory Council for the state of Colorado, the first of its kind in the state. <laughs> Thank you, Raquel. And last but not least, we have Darren Valdez, who is the founder of Colorado Artists in Recovery. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, I'm just going to tell you right now, I was so nervous coming into this room, coming up to the top floor hotel. This is a, this is a big deal. I really appreciate all of you being here and, and learning more about what we're doing here uh, in our community. Um, uh, as well, my most proud accomplishment is I've been sober for eight and a half years from methamphetamines. Um, thank you. I'm also in recovery from experiencing homelessness for over seven years. Uh, my addiction took me out to the streets, um, and uh, it's, it's honestly a miracle that I'm here today. Um, my organization, Colorado Artists Recovery, was born, I was, I was working as a, as a counselor in training at a place called Sobriety House where I got sober, and um, I saw so many individuals come through that program. I lost you. There we go. Come through, come through that program. Um, I the ice cream cones. Hello. Uh, come through that program, and um, there was there was there was a unique set of individuals that would come through, and and they would go into twelve step meetings. You know, the counselors say go join a twelve step meeting, and and that that's how you can continue your, your aftercare program. And a lot of them would go in, and and they would be um, you know addicted to heroin or addicted to meth, and they would go into an AA meeting and they would get chased out. In their eyes, they didn't feel welcome. Um, and, and while we were able to say, well, there's other organizations like NA and, and CA and things, these things, um, once you kind of experience that moment of someone not being, not being welcome, it's really hard to get them to try again, right? Um, and I thought that was just a shame. Um, so most of my time in working with them um, would be to try and rebuild our trust in, in, in trying this again, trying to join a community because you have to feel like you belong before you can start to trust, right? Um, so Colorado Arts Recovery, I noticed that a lot of these individuals were artists and they were musicians and they had this creative side to them. And when I would do IOP groups, the ones that were most popular were the art and the music and, and the meditation ones. But the problem is, is a lot of us, when we, when we first get sober, we don't, we don't know how to socialize. We don't know how to open up, be vulnerable. Um, and 
I just saw them, they would sit for hours and they would paint. And, and I had individuals who would ask to bring their guitars into the treatment center and they would sit there for hours and just strum their guitar. And it was this form of meditation and mindfulness that, and they just had this look of peace on them. And one individual, he came and he wanted to leave and um, he had something, someone had said something that really upset him when he um, came into my office. And I tried all the techniques that we use for, for calming someone down to get them out of that window of tolerance and nothing was working. So he asked me for, I, I just asked him, what do you need right now? And he said, construction paper. And so I went and got him every color in the rainbow and he went downstairs and he started creating these flowers. He was wrapped, kicked the, the coffee straws and he was wrapping the, the paper around the straws. And I looked over his shoulder and he had this beautiful bouquet of origami lilies. And I asked him to write about it. And he said, you know, this is the only thing I've ever been able to give people that didn't hurt them. And that's where the idea came from. So we started during 2020 and COVID when we were losing friends left and right. And we were just like, what can we do? So, you know, we created a music class called Speaking the Language of Music. Caring for Denver came alongside us and said, this is a really creative idea. We love it. We, how can we help you? And we just started listening to people. What, what would you like to learn? So they wanted to learn songwriting. They wanted to learn dance. They wanted to learn art. They wanted to learn all these things. So we just provide that space, a safe, inclusive space, all pathways. Doesn't matter what your what your drug of choice was, anything like that. You are welcome. And the the idea is, is that you have to build that trust before you can have conversations about, you know, I'm really struggling right now, or something really wonderful happened in my life, and I want to celebrate that. But um, our, our our program carries depth and weight in that people trust us, and then once that trust is developed, you can have real conversations about what they're struggling with. So Colorado Arts Recovery now. We do uh, 25 workshops a month um, in all manner of creative expression. And I think I've talked enough. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Darren. Um, I'm not a young person, so I can't go to <laughs> young people in recovery. And I have yet to make it down to Castle Rock, but was a clinical case manager in Douglas County, and there was nothing. So thank you, Raquel. And Darren knows I um, support my recovery and resilience through creativity. And so I go to Darren's open studio and participate in volunteer activities. So all of these services are super important. Peer-to-peer -peer support and recovery and resilience programming is part of a continuum of services. Prevention. We have harm reduction, we have treatment, but then we have recovery and the recovery philosophy. So I'm gonna ask you a question. How do your programs provide peer-to-peer -peer support for recovery and resilience? And anyone can answer first. I'll go then, I'll pass it after the mic, pass the mic. Um, you know, our programs provide peer-to-peer -peer support for recovery and resilience. You know, in Castle Rock, um, our board president, Sarah Sparks, lost her daughter to suicide. And she uh, had a Pac-Man machine crowdfunded online because she believes that if our building was open when Brookie needed it, maybe Brookie would have walked in the doors. So one of the things we want to do is provide walk-in services where we don't have to ask a lot of questions where people can just come. And in Castle Rock, that's what we've done. It's a walk-in space 
where you can come and just be. And it was really neat. We had a little summer program this year with some teenagers. And you want to know how we know it's working? Because last week, one of the girls came in just to deliver us a little bit of chocolate. It's not about you know, the one and done. It's about a continuum. It's about creating this trust that Darren was talking about, a place where we are there before. So if and when something hits, maybe, you know, why we always wait till something happens and we're very reactive in our society to run to the rescue. But I'll tell you right now, I grew up in a, I got sober in a really small town. And when my husband was active, I felt very lonely without community. You know, for my own experience, you know, I did go to treatment, but it was the shortest and most expensive part of my recovery Um, for 11 and a half years. It was the community that carried me. And so, you know, peer-to-peer is so important. We were just talking about that before we got out here, Darren and I, you know. This is unfamiliar territory to Darren and I. We like to hang out in the streets with each other and our people. And so both of us, you know, had a grounding moment for us because this is peer-to-peer support, even at 12 years and even at, you know, what do you have, six years? Eight years. years. So that's how we get through this, even when we're working doing these things that we get to do, we still need peer support. My recovery is never put on the shelf. My recovery stays forward. So peer-to-peer support is really important, not just for the community, but for us that are doing this work. Thank you. Yeah, similar to what Raquel is saying, um, YPR is all about community building. So we really take a lot of pride in meeting people where they're at. So we do a lot of outreach. We hold meetings outside in parks um, at different uh, community agencies um, throughout the country as well because we want people to be able to access our services, um, to see themselves in the people that are leading our meetings and events as themselves, people in recovery, to see what their futures could look like, um, to see what their community could look like. Um, So we take a lot of pride in that. Uh, We also work to build up our leaders and really see what lights their fire. So obviously people have a lot of passion behind this work and so we really give them opportunities um, to find local advocacy initiatives that they feel particularly drawn to and give them the tools that they need to be active participants in you know, building awareness, reducing stigma in these communities, and really empowering themselves and others through that work as well. Um, and and other than that, you know, we we really just want to support people in, into their own evolution. So whether that is more work in the recovery space, whether that's a participant who um, sees the opportunity to become a chapter lead and wants to start their own chapter, that's something that we want to support. Or if it's something entirely different, um, you know, we want to give them the space to do that too. One of the really cool things that our chapters do um, are these pro-social events that I spoke about before, and we have chapters that do um, surfing in California this past week. Um, Our Durango, Colorado chapter uh, spent a week um, rafting down um, the river in Moab and climbing and doing things like that. So really meeting people where they're at and what they're excited about and things that don't necessarily look like um, treatment in the more clinical um, sense, but are really the things that sustain people in their active recovery, um, that help them to build community and give them a purpose in life while also having having fun, which is such an important critical part um, of a person sustaining their recovery, whatever that looks like. Thank you. 
So being the typical person in recovery, I over-prepared for these questions. Um, when a simple answer is all I need. Um, I wrote down, I, I do like this. I wrote, I wrote down the, the, the definition that I really like about connection. Because I think that's, you know, you'll hear, hear this a million times, the opposite of addiction is connection, right? But what does that really truly mean? And I think what we do is we walk along inside these people for life. Right? We're not just a 30, 60 day program. We are building relationships to last throughout the lifetime and empower those individuals to help other people, right? Using the same model as the 12 steps, empowering individuals to serve other people and, and, and solve our community problem with our own people, right? Um, connection is the exchange of positive energy between people. The potential of feeling understood and united through human connection is the one of the most rewarding elements of life. It has the power to deepen the moment and the bond between people, inspire change, build trust, and combat isolation. So that's, that's what we're doing. We're trying to create these opportunities for people to feel safe, feel like they belong, and feel like they can, they can reveal anything that they're going through in their lives. That, in essence, allows us to find the right resources for them. So we're a triage of sorts, right? Um, there's a million different services in our city, but people don't know how to access them. So when they come into our art workshop and they, and they reveal that, you know, uh, they're having a domestic violence situation, you know, I can go to, so there's the Rose Andam Center that does a wonderful programming, right? It's trauma-informed, it's a, it's a wonderful program. If they're seeking a recovery coach and they're down south, I can say, you know, Hard Beauty is a wonderful, wonderful foundation that can walk alongside you. Uh, Advocates for Recovery does free recovery coaching, right? we're a point of access to find out what they need. Um, and they feel, when it's a peer-to-peer -peer relationship, they feel like they can reveal anything to us. They don't have to hide anything or, 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 or be in fear that they reveal something that's gonna get them in trouble. That, that's the one, of the one of the hardest things for a person that's coming out of a drug addiction or something is to trust other individuals, right? So we all personally, we, we believe that Creative expression is a really wonderful way to practice mindfulness, to discover uh, different parts of them that they thought they lost. You walk into some of our art workshops and it looks like a bunch of eight-year-olds like just playing um, because they're rediscovering. When we, when we picked up drugs and alcohol, we stopped maturing. We started running away from difficult emotions, difficult feelings. And now that I'm, yeah, I'm 42 years old and you're telling me I have to start dealing with depression and anxiety without my drug of choice, I don't know how to do that. I literally don't know how to do that. My sponsor says, you can go have fun now. And I said, well, I don't know what that is. Um, so they get to try new things. For me, it was the violin. I had a woman come alongside me and just start teaching the violin. And that's the one thing I go to when I need to feel that sense of flow, right? Um, it's just, there's so many ways. It's hard to answer these, these, these questions simply. But um, all you have to do is participate in one of these workshops, and you see the magic that happens when it's a bunch of people that know exactly what you've been through and have solutions that will work for you. Thank you all. That was wonderful answers to this, these questions that I make you answer. Um, oh, no, please don't do that. Sorry, I was just afraid that my computer was going to lock me out. Um, it's always the tech issue. So how has the rise of fentanyl affected your program participants? This is a two-part question. And how have you adopted programming as a result? 
Well, for one, in Monument, Colorado, and uh, Tri-Lakes area, we have two treatment centers of which don't help our community because people that are struggling can't afford to go there, don't have insurance. And so they um, put a lot of space, take a lot of space up in our community, but they actually don't reach out in our community. Um, and so we don't have any kind of mat treatment in that area. We don't in Castle Rock either. And so one of the things we've done is just made it out loud. We have spoken about the fact that people who are using medicated, medication support are okay. Because I did not have, fentanyl was not my drug of choice, but I was the last wave, which was Opana. And Opana took the life of my best friend. And if we'd have had Narcan in our hands that night, Shauna would be alive tonight. And, um, it, you know, I think about all of that when I'm creating programming, when I'm thinking of how do we reach mamas in rural communities, I think of Priscilla, who sits here, and I'm going to put her story out there only because she already did it, but who has overcome a fentanyl um, uh, 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 dependency um, with online programming because she's a mama with five children who is not going to get to all of the treatments and all of the things that everyone's requiring. And so I've seen Priscilla uh, making dinner on a Zoom call, getting recovery. I've, I've, done, <laughs> I've been on an RTD bus with a mama and her two children while she's doing her recovery. We have put our programming inside New Directions, which is one of the only treatment facilities that takes care of women and mamas. And you'll hear me talk a lot about mama's recovering because I'm passionate about it because I was the mama who had to recover. I was also the mama who had to go back to somebody in active use because I had no other choice. And we've watched women do that over and over and over again. So we've had to be recreative. We meet mamas where they're at. And the, with the fentanyl um, influx is really just letting it be okay that you might need some medication support because that was never offered to me. That was never ever offered to me, and I had back and brain surgeries that left me dependent upon that. Never, ever did anyone offer me any kind of support to get off of that. And that actually right there is a place that we can save folks. So we have, Priscilla actually runs Stepping Stones Recovery. So she has an open conversation with people where there's no shame for what way we can meet you where you're at. And the other thing I'm doing is, is teaming up with Don. Um, from the Naloxone Project and starting a project on moms. Moms overdosing matters. It matters that we take the shame off of mothers who need to recover as if all of a sudden instantly mom makes it, being the mom title makes it easier to get off the substances. It doesn't. It did not get it, make it easier for me. I ended up in a severe, severe detox and I went to a hospital where they couldn't even help me and had no idea what was happening to me in Colorado Springs. And the other thing I wanna see and advocate for is recovery coaching in every single hospital. Um, that's something that could actually help with the fentanyl right now is having one of us sitting in there. I was at a hospital on Saturday and I watched something atrocious <laughs> happen to a citizen because nobody would take an hour to help her get a Medicaid car. That has to stop. So with the fentanyl, it's about meeting people that are out and taking the shame off. Because to be honest, you guys, I didn't ask to be addicted to the medication. I became a medicated or addicted to the medication. I had no idea. Then it just doesn't turn off like that. So we've got to meet people where they're at and offer them compassionate support. So at YPR, we are all about breaking the stigma and recovering out loud. We really encourage people to 
uh, use person-first language when we're talking about substance use disorder, when we're talking about people in long-term recovery, talking about people in active recovery, um, and encouraging them to remember that language is important because if people are not seeing people recover and living with substance use disorder, then it's so much easier to ignore the problem. Um, it's so much easier to not see fentanyl as an issue and not be part of the solution if you don't know anyone who has been affected by it. So we really encourage people to speak up about their experiences um, so we know that we're all in this together. Um, I would be shocked at this point if there hasn't been some, if there isn't anyone uh, that hasn't been affected in some way, even if it's tangentially, um, it's so pervasive at this point, it's, it's really unavoidable, which is truly heartbreaking. So the work that we're doing is really trying to get people to tell their stories so everyone can, can come together as a community to be a part of finding, fighting this epidemic. Um, as an organization, we've released a new harm reduction workshop that is helping to educate people about um, the harm reduction approach because we know that uh, an abstinence-only approach, especially with fentanyl, is not a realistic pathway. So um, we are trying to get people to reduce the stigma about what harm reduction is. Um, a lot of our local leaders have been uh, pursuing um, different contracts where we're able to give out Narcan to anyone and everyone. Um, I carry Narcan with me all all the time and encourage everyone to do so. If y'all need Narcan, <laughs> let us know. We will hook you up. Um, uh, that's being a part of a responsible community, taking care of one another. Carrying Narcan um, does not enable uh, substance use. It enables breathing and people have to be able to breathe in order to recover from their substance use disorder. So that is what we at Young People in Recovery are really trying to promote uh, to educate educate people more um, that goes with you know fentanyl testing strips and all of that too we're, we're wanting to give these out to our community members so that if they're at a point where they are still in active use then they can they can use safely so that it, hopefully at some point they're able to find their pathway to recovery and recover I was telling Jenny, this is the question that was going to make me nervous. It's a fentanyl action summit. And I, I better have a really good answer for this one. Um, the truth is I don't. I, I don't. Um, it's new to me. I, I, I did not worry about fentanyl eight years ago when I was using. Um, I can't imagine how scared parents are right now. And I think that's what we've been able to do. <coughs> Excuse me. We're, we're a young organization. We're about a year and a half old. And we've been focused on mainly just trying to create community and doing community building. Where it has shown up the most is in parents reaching out um, because they're terrified. Um, what we have been able to do is give them opportunities to be of service. Um, one couple in particular, we, uh, we take uh, our workshops into a place called Colorado Village Collaborative, which is uh, they do the safe outdoor spaces in our city for people experiencing homelessness. And um, this woman's son passed away and um, from an overdose. And she didn't know how to heal. She didn't know how to deal with that. And um, she just came to me and she was like, I, I want to be, be part of the solution. How can I help? So we were creating art bags for the individuals that live in those communities. And he was a homeless individual. And um, 
so she just came and now she she helped us make the art bags and she helped deliver them to the people that are experiencing homelessness. So it gave her a way to heal through being able to help other people that were in her son's situation. Um, we also measure um, uh, through our impact numbers how many people are uh, experiencing our uh, opioid use disorder um, so we can help measure the numbers. Um, but we're catching up. Um, if you know anything about the recovery uh, industries, there's always something new, as Jenny was saying. Fentanyl's now. What's next? I mean, with synthetic um, opioids, it's 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 always going to be something new. I think. I think we just my my hope is that we all start working together in the fact that when I have someone that needs help with that particular issue, I have a series of of other programs that I can help someone with. I can say, this is a great place to tell you. It has free treatment, free counseling. Um, you need housing. Okay, here's somewhere that you can go to. Um, even if you don't have Medicaid right now, if you don't have uh, insurance right now, there is some options for you. Because right now, I get people, and it'll take me a day to two days to find them the right referral um, and get them into a place where they can actually get treatment. Um, it takes quite a while. The first question I always get is, what insurance do they have? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you guys, when I got into recovery, I didn't have insurance. I didn't have a dollar to my name. And I've come quite a, far, quite a ways from someone giving me a bed. So how do we do that? How do we give people options instead of asking them 500 questions before we can ask, tell them if we can help them or not? <laughs> So I'm going to backtrack just a little bit because Duke Rumley from Sober AF was able to get here. I want to give him just a couple minutes to talk about his organization and his work before we continue with the panel questions. Thank you. Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, Duke Rumley, Sober AF Entertainment. So this is us. We set up uh, safe spaces and fun places. We've been around for four years. Uh, we are changing culture at music festivals, concerts, sporting events. So, sorry if I'm yelling. Um, I set a land speed record getting here and I'm legally parked and the heart rate's up a little bit. So, uh, <laughs> um, but I got three minutes and it's a very simple idea, right? Three, four years ago I started this um, as a guy 29 years sober. I had a 16 year old son whose best friend OD'd on a weed brownie and it had uh, 10 days of um, concentrate in it, and they're supposed to only eat one-tenth, and these, my son's best friend OD'd on this thing, had a psychotic break. At the same time, my 20-year-old daughter was at uh, Red Rock seeing Louis the Child, and all of her friends were on ecstasy, and she wanted to know, um, how do I take an Uber home? And I just thought, this is BS. These kids have no other culture besides this party culture. And uh, I'm not one to start a revolution, but um, I know how to have sober fun as a guy who's been sober for a long time. So um, we have hosted 126 sober sections at music festivals and um, NFL, NHL, NBA, MLB. Um, we were just at the Texas-Alabama game. Um, the week before that, we did the CU-TCU game this coming weekend, uh, four days in Atlanta at a music festival called Imagine, and they gave us 30 spots for sober camping. So um, earlier this summer, we were at Country Jam, and on their website, they put 
click here for sober camping. And we managed a sober campsite. And we had all of four people show up. But, you know, we are changing culture and this is how it happens. And, um, you know, they fight wars to change culture. And, uh, and that's what we're up against. We're up against a trillion dollar industry of the alcohol business globally. Two billion dollars is spent on advertising in the United States alone. Um, and how do we protect these kids? Um, it's, it's kind of the mission. So um, if you come up and you want a sober AF entertainment shirt with our killer schedule on the back, come see me. Um, this coming, a week from Friday, I'm sorry, Saturday, the 24th, um, we're going to be at the University of Colorado. We're going to have 100 plus tickets for a sober section inside the CU game. And if you've seen them play, you know that a sober section is really important. Um, but uh, we're going to have speakers beforehand. So um, we've been blessed that we've had uh, our attorney general speak at our events. Um, we've had different senators speak at our events. Um, and we need their help, right? This is not something we're kind of able to do with zero funds um, up against what we're up against. You know, different universities have told me they can't promote a sober section because they have microbrewery sponsors, you know, even though half their kids are under the age of 21. So um, what does this have to do with fentanyl? Everything. This is this party culture. It's A or B, right? And... Um, we know one pill can kill right now. Um, we've been lucky to have the DEA support us for events in Miami, and we just got an agreement to the Ohio State-Michigan game. They're going to fund that. Um, we're doing stuff uh, at the University of Missouri and Kansas State through DEA funding. So we will take money from anyone, right? We'll take money from the Cali cartel. Don't care. Um, <laughs> it's an easy idea. Uh, you're right. We probably wouldn't take money from the Cali cartel. They could be our fourth sponsor, but not our first one. Anyways, sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Duke. I don't know. I'm thinking of the Cali cartel giving back and being of community service. <laughs> so my next question is, abstinence-based recovery has typically been our model. Um, how do your programs support people who are decreasing slowly, um, or use a harm reduction approach, or for individuals who choose non-abstinence-based recovery or moderation management? You know, I'll be honest, I got sober in a really small town and there was only one option. It's AA meetings five days a week, seven days a week in the basement of a church. There was no other recovery. Um, I, I didn't have any other options. Again, right, two treatment centers, they don't offer us to the community. So it's the same thing over and over again. And I'm grateful for it, I'll tell you. It, it gave me a great foundation. Um, but really, when my recovery really took off and gave me this, like, new dimension was the gift and, I know, the curse of COVID. Um, I was in a small town. Um, I was really struggling. I was lonely. I was uh, feeling kind of like an outcast. I had been removed from the church. They had asked me to leave. Um, so I was kicked out of the place that I had kind of come to know. And when I started Hard Beauty and kind of started meeting people, I honestly, I was very sketchy of Denver, folks. I got from Aurora, but I ran away to get out of all of this chaos. 
And so coming back in here was really hard for me. Um, I was very sketchy meeting new people in recovery. I was like, I don't know about you for about a year. Um, didn't really know anybody. Duke took me a minute. It, it, I'll just be honest, because I'm from a small town, so it was really awkward for me. Um, and so I had to open up my mind, too, because I was 12-step based, to that there's this idea of a different type of recovery, where we can meet people where you're at. And I, my first, one of my first clients, actually, um, as a recovery coach, she took her six months to decide she even wanted to maybe put down a drink. You know, at first it brought up, and then she didn't want to talk about it, so we didn't. And we talked about all kinds of other things for six months until she was ready with the trust thing that Darren talked about to talk about that, like, hey, I think I want to maybe try not drinking. And then it was... It took her like, hey, I, didn't, I had one next week. Okay, well, she wanted to meet. She wanted to try some moderation. It's about no shame and about meeting people where they're at, you know. And, and, and I'll be honest, she has two and a half years without a drink today. And that, it took her six months to get that, though, right? It was no shame. And so I had to open up my mind, even coming into recovery coaching and all of this new concept, because um, I, I have a CAC degree and things like that. I'd wrap my own brain around this idea of you know, recovery and meeting people they're at. But you know what? It has been the best open space in my brain. I've met so many things. I just got back from nine days at Burning Man, if you want to talk about a unique possibility <laughs> to uh, sit there and try to be sober in a space where peer support looked like helping people through psychedelics. Um, I, and I know that sounds um, really like we shouldn't do that, but you don't need anybody losing their mind in the middle of the playa with 70,000 people. And so we meet people where they're at. I handed out Narcan all over the playa because I'm not stopping anybody from doing that thing, right? That's not my job. My job is to be here if they want to talk about it. My job is also to let them know that that stuff might have something in it. And so I want you to put this on your person. And so that's what I did. And so, you know, I had to, it, it's about no shame. Um, I just did the shame booth. They were just in here from the, uh, the uh, mobilized recovery bus was in town. And I went through a shame booth where I got on a cell phone or a telephone and you get to like drop your shame. And that's really what we're about. People feel safe talking to us. And so the non-absent, that abstinence space is really, um, it was something hard for me, but I was able to wrap my head around it and we have to, or we're just going to keep losing folks. It, it's especially with an opiate. It doesn't work like that. I know everybody thinks you could just stop doing it, but you can't just stop doing it. You make an absolute great point. When I, I had to loosen my idea, open, be open-minded about what recovery is. And when I took recovery coach training, they said, you know, recovery, you're in recovery when you say you're in recovery. And if you're walking alongside them, you can't tell them this is right and this is wrong. They have to discover that for themselves. You were walking beside them. And that was really hard for me to understand because I, my mind wanted to go to, I can fix the situation. I know it's right for you. This is what you need to do. And those things. And that was the most difficult thing. Motivational interviewing was really difficult for me. Um, but I really had to look at myself and, and my own recovery and open my mind to like, we're trying to help people that are drowning. Like, there's no proper way to do that, you, you know? Um, so what, what we do in our core pro programming, we do six-week workshops so we can develop relationships and they can develop a, a community amongst themselves. But we also do one-time workshops. We also take workshops into communities that aren't sober. Right, and when we take them into the SOS villages, you know, they're just contemplating, pre-contemplation, right? Maybe, possibly. So we're trying to we we bring in people that are in recovery, to 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 kind of shine, 
and, and share their personal stories of why art, music, whatever it is, has been such an important part in them wanting a better life for themselves. So they kind of peek over the fence at like, so you were just like me, and I can have that too? That's what we want. We want them to be able to say, maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe I could ask, at, at, they have counselors at the Color Village Collaborative, and they could say, or at the gathering place, or the Don't Look Back Center, and say, I, I think I might want to look into this. What would that take, right? To get that first interest, and in maybe I can put this down. That's what we're hoping for. In our core programming, we do ask that they have 24 hours of sobriety because we don't want individuals to be triggered um, if someone shows up drunk or intoxicated. That's, that's, a, that's something we need to hold firm for, to, for those people to feel safe in exploring their things. So there's, your program just doesn't have to be black and white. You respond to the needs of your community and you create programming that can help in that manner. Yeah, I'll just say quickly, um, we want as many people to access recovery as possible, and we know um, as an organization that celebrates all pathways, um, that if we promoted abstinence only, that there wouldn't be as many people in recovery. So we really try to encourage people to find what works for them and support them in doing that. And I think that's the beauty of our organization is that we can have so many people share about their own unique experiences in recovery. Um, and that doesn't always look like abstinence only. Um, sometimes that's a harm reduction approach. Sometimes that's a, I no longer use my previous substance of choice approach. And, and we honor that and respect that as long as that's healthy for them and they feel that's like something they can actively sustain in their own recovery too. Because we want people to know that it doesn't have to be a cookie cutter version of recovery. It doesn't have to, uh, you know, work a certain step or fit into a certain definition. It really should be something that they get to define for themselves. And in doing so, we'll see more and more people in recovery that way. Um, as a guy whose nonprofit has the word sober in it, you know, this is a little bit of a struggle for us, right? And which was kind of mentioned earlier, you know, my number one concern is protecting my community. And so when somebody does reach out to us, I've had a couple of people say like, hey, you know, I still get high. Can I come to your thing? I'm like, you cannot be high at our event. You will be triggering to our community, and that's what we're really trying to build. However, you're more than welcome to come, and you can get high afterwards. Um, that's great. And come and check it out and try, like, Sober October or Sober January or whatever you want to do. Um, we bring Narcan to all of our events. We've done Narcan trainings. Um, we bring a lot of drug deactivation kits, but nobody wants them, but we bring them. Um, you know, we've, we've uh, thought about bringing fentanyl test kits to our, our events also. Um, but, you know, we're really, you know, kind of our primary concern is, you know, setting a, a, a safe space for our community. And what that looks like is, you know, you're not high and you're not drunk at that event. One thing I wanted to say in Douglas County, it's a unique population a uh, unique area to push recovery. Um, and so what we've done is we, at first, were kind of kicked out of the park because we were giving out Narcan one day um, because they didn't know what we were doing. And we were able to turn that around. And what we started was a sober, not dead tent. So basically, there's a tent that says sober, not dead. And what we offer are uh, non-alcoholic margaritas. And um, it's a fundraiser. And let me tell you what that opportunity is. It is 
we've had moms come up, dads come up saying, hey, my kid's struggling. You know, are you the people we get to talk to? Or we had a gentleman who didn't know what to do with the grief of the loss of his son, and he is a donate, he donates to us now. And the other thing is like the pregnant mama who just didn't, you know, wanted a sober alternative. And so we kind of do the same thing in our small community um, of operating. I told him, I said, look, I'm not here to be anti your beer because we can't really say that in Colorado. We're not anti your beer. I'm just going to be a sober alternative to the community, and that's what we wanted to offer. And, you know, Duke has really opened it up for us to do some sober entertainment. Like, I got to go to a Rockies game with my kids. That was so much fun, Duke. I'm so grateful for the work you do um, and providing, because I avoided that like the plug until you started that. I didn't go to Rockies games. And it was fun because there's people on Zoom that I hadn't seen in forever, and I could say hi to my friends. And so I just want to second, I love what you do, and I think it's really important in the community. One more thing. We went to a, a conference up in, um, up in um, Plymouth Springs, and there was a gentleman that spoke there, and he really challenged everybody. He says, how can you say you're an all-pathways program if that's not true? How can you say you're an all-pathways program if you're not open-minded to any way that someone's going to find their recovery? And that challenged me. And I realized that I have inner biases about, I got covered, uh, sober this way, so that's the only way to get sober, and that's just not true. There's all levels of, of, of recovery in everything we do, not just substance use disorder. So how can we really look at ourselves and say, and ask ourselves that question, right? How can I be open-minded so that I can help people when I didn't think I could? Like, I think that's the most important question we need to ask ourselves as organizations is, are we being... Um, are we turning that, that eye on us and our program and making sure that we're doing that? All right, so I did just get locked out of my computer. So my last question is, how do your peer support staff or volunteers integrate strategies for healing from trauma, um, emotional distress, and or mental health conditions? Um, I was speaking with uh, Commissioner Dr. Medlock the other night at the advocacy, and what I said is that the, at, the, at the end of the day, we're all going to be asked to recover from something at some point, whether it is substance use disorders, the loss of a family member, my, you know, domestic violence, um, all of these things, and, and recoveries in layers. The first thing I did was put down a drink <laughs> first. Then I went and dealt with my trauma, and I dealt with that in layers. And as someone, I, I'm, I'm starting to the, this term of trauma-informed leadership, which is what I have to do as somebody who takes care of 24 people who do this work across the state, is that all of my team also still has the trauma. And so one of the things we did in our programming specifically was not ask our peers to recover in a different space. They get to recover in the same space as our community does, and we recover together. You know, for so long it was, you should go over there and do your healing. Well, you should be over there. Well, I was only allowed in basements where nobody could look at me or talk to me. You know, I also didn't have a family that helped me recover. I was very much alone. And so one of the things that's really important is that we make sure that the community, us that do this work, still can take care of ourselves because we still have our recovery. It has to come first. If I drink tomorrow, all this goes away. You know, and so that's really important is that we're asking people, the most vulnerable, 
unique populations to take care of the most unique and vulnerable populations. 90% of us are still on Medicaid care. Most of us don't get off insurance. It took me two and a half years to get off, Medica off of Medicaid. Wanting to thrive, wanting to give our people, getting them off, of, getting them livable wages, but when you do that, they don't become eligible for their state fund. Now they don't have insurance. So we get into this crux back and forth of how do we take care of our people. So it's not just the people that walk in the door. It's the people that are still, we're still in recovery. Darren and I are still in recovery. We had a little meeting before we got started today, right? Because that's how we recover. It's a continuum and it's layered. You know, my husband's recovery too. He, took, he picked chickens. He, he raised chickens for two years. That was his recovery. It wasn't mine. You know, I didn't do the same thing. Jumped in Crip gang member, y'all. Raising chickens in Larkspur, Colorado. You know, so you have to keep it really open because I promise you, I tried to force feed him recovery as much as I could at the very beginning. I wanted him to eat all the good, but he didn't want the cake. He didn't want to actually, I ended up repelling him from it. I think it's actually, I hindered his recovery. I think it took him longer because of it. And so, you know, part of that is that we have to support the people that do the work and the people walking in the doors. Um, Emily, did you want to go? Okay. Um, well, they're, they're the basics of, of having training for your, for your instructors, peer-led instructors, helping them be aware of when they are in trauma responses and not bringing that into a classroom, into a workshop, and, and um, having options for them to work with us to um, identify and be aware of that before they work with people. That's essential. Um, we just got finished a training where we did trauma-informed um, evidence or um, backwards curriculum develop, uh, development. So what do we want them to feel when they walk out of our workshops? How can we be aware of trauma and not go into trauma with them, right? Um, but find alternate solutions and resources that we can uh, at, um, refer them to. Um, and we, we do a trauma-informed yoga workshop every Monday evening. And the woman that uh, does that, she has 200 hours of training in certified trauma yoga instruction. Um, but even she realizes, she's a person in recovery as well, that sometimes when she goes into these, she's just reacting to a situation. Um, and how could she talk to me, walk through that before she goes and works with these people. And then we have uh, some really good partners that we can refer individuals to if they come up to us to say, this really uh, triggered me in, in, a, in a way. Um, and then just realizing what she was talking about is, I, the last time I was in this hotel was not a good time. Um, and I got in the elevator and I had a trauma response. I, I started breathing heavily and I started getting really anxious and I started, so I went to Raquel and I just said, I'm, I'm really struggling right now. And we just did some breathing exercises and we calmed ourselves down and we're like, we're here to do good. So, and that worked. It's, 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 it's simple how just being able to go to someone who know, I know I can trust and say anything to can help me like that, you know? So that's, that's what we try to do. We try to, train these people up to be able to help other individuals, but be also be aware that they have stuff going on themselves. Yeah. Um, so YPR, we are not clinical practitioners, but we do promote holistic health. That's a big one for us. So one of our life skills um, classes is all about taking care of the whole person. So really emphasizing wellness across the spectrum for folks and educating people about trauma and how so many people's uh, substance use disorder is often um, 
you know, born out of uh, a need to cope with mental health challenges, with trauma and things like that too. So really um, destigmatizing that, normalizing that, educating people about that and, and promoting healthy coping skills as a result. Um, so, you know, we do that through, through our life skills workshops, yes, but also through different events like trauma-informed yoga and getting outside and, and things like that. And because so many people are, are uh, in recovery as well within our organization, we really try to, you know, promote the culture of, of mental health awareness and, and trauma-informed care by doing internal trainings and just making sure that people are prioritizing themselves, that they're putting on their own oxygen masks before they put on someone else's so that we can be there to show up for people, that we can model what it looks like to be, um, to be well, to be in recovery and hopefully lead by example and encourage people to follow in those footsteps. So, uh, Duke Romley Silver AF Entertainment. Um, we've hosted 126 events. Every place we go to is where the trauma happens, unfortunately. You know, we're at music festivals till four in the morning. Um, we Rockies, Nuggets, Abs. Um, uh, my daughter calls it the dad zone. You know, she knows she's safe with 100 sober folks hanging out. Um, no one's going to roof her, and uh, she won't have some inappropriate guys come up and hit on her. But... Um, Everyone that you see up on this table have all come to our events and have set up a booth at our sober support tailgate beforehand. So what we do is we set up a safe space and then we'll try to have a peer recovery coach, male, female, Spanish speaking, and try to set up a situation where somebody can hear about some different type of recovery support and then ideally um, be able to use the resources that we have in this state because we need it, right? We're the first state that legalized all this stuff, so we need it here. And, um, and then be able to kind of meet these amazing organizations that popped up from this great need. And, um, you know, I think we all don't realize how much trauma we walked through with COVID, you know. I was at an event, and I, uh, my body was saying, hey, man, it's 8 o'clock. It's like Netflix time. What are we doing going out? And I was like, man, I'm 30 years sober, and my body does not want me to go inside this venue where I'm going to know everyone. That's not like there's booze there, right? But I was still like, ugh, like there's a part of me like, no, nope, sun goes down, man. It is time to isolate. And um, I think we're all like walking through a lot of different stuff. Um, we've had a couple people walk up to our table and say, I am either going to use or I was going to find you guys. I came here with some other people. We made this pack we weren't going to use. And those other people are using and I'm totally triggered. Um, this was New Year's Eve at Decadence here in Denver. And, you know, after the kid kind of came back and was hanging out with us for an hour, he was still triggered. And we're like, dude, you are not safe here. You should go home. He left us, got home to Loveland to his home group that had a midnight fiesta meeting going on. And he stayed sober through that night. Um, so, you know, we're, we're not really built to kind of walk somebody off that ledge in that situation. So that's kind of what we'll end up doing. But, you know, really, it's ideally kind of introducing them to the um, amazing communities we have here at, at this table. Thank you, Duke. So now we have time for some questions and answers from our panelists, and then we're going to ask one final question of our panelists and wrap up the session. So 
Who wants to take, oh, we have mics already, so I'll turn this one off. I'll don't drop, don't all just jump up at once. Come on. It's people who are hard of hearing can't hear you. So it's an accessibility request. Um, so I thought it was interesting how you pointed out, uh, all of you basically pointed out that you can't tell someone when they are are or are not in recovery. So I'm from juvenile justice, and so really the model is abstinence. You don't use. This is, this is the reason you're here most of the time. How do you manage that from a system who's consistently preached abstinence as the solution to criminality? How, how do you use the treatment timeline or wave to support that. Yeah, our organization is called Young People in Recovery. <laughs> we do meet a lot of people uh, who are young people <laughs> in recovery, but we don't discriminate. So, just so you know, you, you can you're only as old as you feel, you know. So we really encourage people from all ages. Uh, but I think that's a great question, and yeah, we do, you know, find ourselves at that intersection of how do we, you know, support young people who whose brains are still growing and developing, but also be realistic and, again, meet them where they're at. Um, if we say that they can only involve, be involved in our services if they are 100% abstinent, we are likely to see many folks there. So um, while we don't want to promote any quote-unquote criminal activity, we also want people to be able to ex be exposed to these services and to see what it's like to be amongst other people in recovery who have walked similar paths and are still having fun or still having full and meaningful lives, too. So um, we just started a new life skills program called My Future is Epic, and that's promoting, um, you know, alternative ways of... of being as a young person and promoting foundational life skills that will give them the opportunity to see that there is um, meaning and purpose beyond substance use. And so that's something that we're, we're looking to roll out more and more within our Colorado communities and across the nation too. Right now, um, you know, we're meeting people where they're a little bit older than, than adolescents or juveniles, um, but that's why we specifically responded with this new program so we could introduce these new concepts to kids that you know, in their schools, they're really not learning anything about um, multiple pathways. I don't know about y'all, but the like the D.A.R.E. program didn't really do a whole lot to help me. So we're really trying to be part of that solution and finding other strategies to educate young people um, about substance use disorder and also about recovery and that it doesn't have to look like some stuffy room in a church basement. No offense to people who recovered in that way, but there are also, you know, great opportunities for them um, to learn about other other ways of approaching it as well. Um, we 
took it up. I've, I've actually, you know, I have four children myself. Um, I've also been able to foster three other teenagers in my recovery whose parents were struggling with substance use disorders. Um, one of them, her name is Sabrina. You will see her on our website. Um, she has been with us for over three and a half years. Um, started off with um, um, some mental health issues and just walked in and she's just kind of never left. Um, she is a youth coach who specifies working with youth under the age of 24. Um, and we put her through school for a very specific coaching certification out of uh, the Youth Institute from um, uh, Texas, and I'm actually flying that woman in here October to help us do some more work because she's that good at it. Um, her name is Dr. Mazzola, and the reality is I keep thinking of myself at 16 and how much you would have got me to be abstinent, and I got to tell you, I lied, lied, lied. And the reality is we create a system where we force the lie. We force it because they know they're looking for something specific. And I've worked with young people, and sometimes it's an honest conversation of, how about we just go ahead and check them boxes till you're done with this, and then after that, I really don't know what you're going to do. We live in a world, we also have marijuana that's legal in the state of Colorado, and the reality is people are going to experiment. A lot of people do. I met people who actually did and didn't end up like me. So the idea, too, is that people who touch it will end up that way. That's the, all these assumptions, right? And that obviously we know, I can tell you my criminal activity was a result of using. That's the only time I've ever actually been in trouble with the law. So it's also, it's ands. I don't think it's ors. I don't think we do this or that. I think it's a lot of ands with young people. Um, and we do a lot of stigma reduction and we walk with folks and sometimes it is that conversation. I'll be honest, I'll be like, well, let's go and check this box for about six months. Also, in that time, I've seen things, miracles happen and work happens where they're like, yeah, you know what? At the end, I'm not going to go back to it. But the reality is we're, you're not, they're, they're doing it to appease you. That's parents. That's we raised our children. They're supposed to do what we say. So then we force the lie. I, that's what I did. I was, I was going to get in trouble. And so, yes, to be obedient and to follow rules, yes, but we force the lie. It's what you see it, we see it misused with like Medicaid and things like that because it's an all or nothing game. And young people are smart. Young people are smart. They know you're looking at them for this all or nothing. And so they play the game. And not because they want to, but if there was this open and compassionate space, like where we have youth centers where you can come in. If you used yesterday, okay. If you didn't use two days before, okay, right? And we celebrate the fact that you didn't use today. We just meet them there and celebrate the fact that that didn't happen. And working with the criminal justice system, the reality is I have to tell young people very honestly, look, I'm not a judge. The judge is going to say some things. The other thing is we can talk to ourselves better than y'all can talk to us. Just going to say that. We have this way. I was at the hospital the other day and I had this gentleman tell me, well, Ms. Garcia, or ma'am, I'm in school to get my degree as a social worker. And I said, okay, have you ever overcome a heroin or opiate addiction? He said, no. I said, okay. He said, because I understand the mentality. I go, well, I have. So no, you don't understand the mentality. And I appreciate your education, but I have education and lived experience. And I need you not to smash on my lived experience. So it's a lot of, pa it's a lot of patience. It took th Sabrina's three and a half years we've been working with her. It's not an instant game with young people. It's patience. Patience and time. I have another question. Okay. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your experiences with us. I have a two-part question. 
I'm interested in, it seems that most of you founded and started your own peer recovery programs. And so I'm interested in any advice and the lessons learned in how you started out in building a new program. And the second part to that is, are there any collaboratives or coalitions of peer programs to help new programs build or to support programs that are doing like work? Don't do it. <clears throat> um, so there is a, a bunch of amazing resources. I had no clue what I was doing. Um, still don't. And it's four years into this thing. Um, but uh, we have been blessed. We've got the uh, Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. Um, so that uh, organization helped us fund grant writers. Um, so we were able to kind of use that for um, some grant writing because when COVID happened, all the music festivals and all the sports stopped. And, um, and that's what we do. So we were in trouble. Um, and the treatment centers that were supporting us all stopped supporting us financially. So um, we were able to kind of get funding through that route. So that's an amazing community. I think everyone up here, we've all um, got each other's back. So um, we all know that... There is uh, 110,000 kids are going to die this year, and and we're all working our asses off and waking up every morning thinking, how do we stop this? And um, it's getting worse, you know. Um, so uh, I think um, this peer recovery coaching specialist um, idea is super new, and it's not a lot of barriers to entry, and it seems a lot easier than trying to send people to. Um, school for a long time and get a lot of debt and then be able to do it. So um, I would say kind of find what you think your niche is um, and f find that community that needs that support um, and then talk to all of us. Um, one place I would go, the Behavioral Health Administration Advisory Council is what I sit on and we actually right now are creating a I just sat in a meeting last week where we're creating um, a questionnaire to go out so that we can gather this information at the state level. And so there'll be one spot where you'll be able to find communities. You could just start Googling recovery coach communities in Colorado and start researching and reading. Um, that's kind of how I got started. I got plucked out of the mountains. So I kind of got found versus like coming in this way. The other thing you can do is um, uh, the consortium of Colorado. So we have a, a couple work groups. Um, Jenny and I work in a couple together and so the Consortium of Colorado has a recovery work group and I like to just like just show up you know even the BHA there's a you can go on there and stop and get on the meetings that are uh, every month and you can just listen uh, you know I think the best thing to do is just start showing up but that's kind of what I did and just sit in and they, they won't kick you out we're all too nice to do that so you just sit there and listen um, and then yeah get emails and ask a lot of questions um, ask yourself, are you willing to do anything for this? Is this, is this your real passion? Um, you're going to spend 70, 80 hours a week doing this. Creating community requires you to really believe in what you're doing. So ask yourself that question first. There is a lot of support. Organizations like Caring for Denver, they, they, they have come alongside us and they were like, we want 
creative solutions to these problems because we're trying the same things over and over again and we want to try new things. So there are, there are plenty of foundations that, that will come behind you as long as you are willing to do the work, right? And it's a lot of work, but it is so worth it. And it, and it has to be rooted in um, your own story, I believe. Because it's, when you're on, hour, on that 80th hour, you know, and you're, you have someone that comes to you and says, Darren, struggling, I have to give her more time, even though I'm tired. But I will because I know that person was just like me. So it has to really come from a place from your heart, if you're willing to do that. And then once you decide that, there are so many organizations. Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse, Treatment Professionals and Alumni Services does all kind of wonderful things. COPA, like there's so many organizations that are looking for you, the person that's willing to be the boots on the ground. All right. I hate to cut off questions, but there's a really important question I want to ask our panelists. And so we're going to close with this. Panelists, in your opinion, if you could change one systemic policy or strategy to support people in recovery, what would it be? Um, just more access to treatment, less barriers uh, for people to find recovery. Uh, if anyone, you know, anyone who wants to access any pathway to recovery should be able to access that. Um, there's no reason why barriers to entry should be a reason why pe a person doesn't stay alive or doesn't find recovery. Um, to that point, uh, I challenge everyone here. So the CDC came out um, in the last uh, three months and said uh, 42.6 million Americans qualify for substance abuse disorder, yet 1.6 million are gonna seek treatment this year, right? 5%. So they are not buying what we're selling, right? And is it financially? Sure, right, that's a, a portion of it. Um, but 95% of people don't want, you know, recovery because they're, for whatever reason, afraid of it. And are they afraid financially? Are they afraid what it looks like on the other side? Um, so I think we kind of need to have this different thought of like, good news is 95% of people need what we're selling up here, right? And we got to figure out how do we make this a little more either appealing or available. Um, we need to make it more accessible for treatment. For women specifically, that's just going to be my soapbox. Mamas who, so, who get sober and recover, just take a look at my children. The, the generational opportunities, I'm not discounting men. I'm a woman, I didn't get sober like a man. I got sober like a woman, like a mama. What we, well, the opportunities I'm watching, mamas who recover, what we do for our children is amazing, amazing. And we can't go because we can't afford it or we can't take care of ourselves after that and we don't go. And then that's the generational pattern that keeps repeating itself. And so access to women and for the care for the child. I didn't go to treatment. I was told I couldn't go the first year because my husband said, Raquel, you can't go. You got to take care of the baby. So I stayed 
home and took care of the babies, intoxicated, and my friend died in that time from an overdose. If I would have had access to care and had the ability, I would have gone. I was blessed and by probably got one of the only scholarships Parker Valley's given out in a really long time, 12 and a half years ago, and by the grace, I actually got into treatment and didn't have to pay for it. That is unheard of. You should see the phone calls we make. I have a regional uh, navigator for the area, and you want to know how many phone calls she makes to get somebody into treatment? Four, five days, and they don't have any money. So I'm pushing for female, women advocacy for women to get into sobriety. Not only that, but supportive housing. Do you know we have no sober, very few sober housing in Colorado where I have to take my child? So again, I got to leave my kid and do it again. So that's why we see that re repetition. So that's one of the things I want to change. Stop criminalizing uh, mental health and substance use. Like, you, when people need help, you don't throw them in jail as a solution. It, it just, it's ridiculous. And it's so rooted in profit and just ridiculous. It's, it's, it's a horrible solution to our problem. And we're giving way too much money to criminal justice instead of um, solutions to mental health. So. That's basic. Um, also, I, like personally in Denver, I would like to see a recovery center, right? Where someone could walk in and there are multiple resources they can access right there, right then, right? They don't have to get on a website for this and then go across town for this when they don't even have any bus passes and, and it's the center where people could go get help and they could find the solutions that they need. And I mean, that's just basic one. Thank you, all of you, for sharing your uh, expertise by experience. And thank you all for joining this session and being part of our summit. Here's what's coming into view on Elevating Denver. As a sister of Loretto, it is my privilege to thank you for coming to celebrate Pancratia Hall's new life. With those words, Sister Mary Nell Gage welcomed community members to celebrate the grand opening of the Pancratia Hall Lofts in Southwest Denver. These 72 affordable homes are the first in a series of projects that will breathe new life into the historic Loretto Heights campus. I'm just so happy that this is the first thing that we're celebrating here it really celebrates community not only that it celebrates the spirit of Loretto service to the community the sisters of Loretto called this 70 acre site home for 100 years founded in 1888 by mother Pancratia Bonfies the site housed and educated generations of students until Loretto Heights College closed in 1988 1988 they left here but their heart is still here so to have the former dormitory classroom building become housing for first-year teachers, they'll find a home here. In the Catholic tradition, May 12, today, is the feast of St. Pancras. Don't we know that Pancratia is watching over this new life? The site was home to Takeo Loretto Heights College and then Colorado Heights College from 1989 to 2017. Once the college closed, the site faced an uncertain future. 
but Councilman Kevin Flynn immediately formed a steering committee to determine what would become of the area. So we can't let this campus go the way of so much that we've seen around the country that falls apart, that's historic, that carries our legacy, carries our history. We can't lose this. What does the community want this to be? I'm standing here today in front of the very first thing that was important to people, and that was to house working families, because that's what the spirit of Loretto was all about. What followed was a public-private partnership that included extensive community outreach and engagement. The direction has always been to acknowledge the legacy of the Sisters of Loretto. Our goal was very simple. Respect what was started on these grounds 134 years ago by Mother Pancratia and create a natural project that lifts its community and celebrates its history. All aspects of the community voice challenge the project to stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. Because of the process of listening to the community voice, the project does have a spirit. That is not to say that the community members the Sisters of Loretto, or the city, received 100% of what they were seeking. In many cases, we had opposing wishes that simply were impossible to coexist. But again, the results are amazing, whereas everybody got something. The result of the process are 72 affordable units, from studios to four bedrooms, that can all be had from 30 to 80 percent of the area median income. Families can live here, folks. Families can live here. That is something to celebrate. Families can live here. The units are all unique and display the charm and character of the building. This includes the breathtaking four-bedroom unit that was once home to the chapel. You can see behind me we have historically preserved lighting as well as uh, re-glazed and preserved uh, windows. Uh, Hartman Ely Investments is very good at historic preservation and pays great attention to detail. Now I'm in somebody's kitchen and dining room. Uh, and that's just the beauty of creativity shown in affordable housing here in Denver. These units are just the start, as the future holds many more opportunities for both this campus and other affordable housing in our city. I'm also proud to tell you that together with our partners, we have a strong pipeline of other affordable housing projects. Today, a total of 1,202 affordable housing units that have received city financing are under construction, our preservation, at 25 different sites throughout the city of Denver. We have an additional 779 affordable homes in the planning stage, anticipated break ground approximately sometime this year, so I'll be at another ceremony. And so today, this is no short feat. We take one step forward with 72 units, recognizing the opportunity to house our families who are housing insecure. Sometime in the future, this is gonna be such a vibrant community. There's going to be senior housing, there's going to be the performing arts, there's going to be community center, there's going to be workforce housing. There's going to be housing for people who are pretty well-to-do, frankly, because that's the kind of community we're trying to build down here. Stay elevated by subscribing to the city's YouTube page and stay tuned to our social media channels for more content. Don't miss our new episodes of Elevating Denver, premiering each month. Thanks for watching, Denver. My name is Hunter Hayes. 
and I know my buzzed warning signs. One shot is about knowing my limits, or not necessarily knowing my limits. I start with one shot to have a good time. Everybody knows how easy one can turn into five. I think a sign that I'm buzzed is when I start solving not only my own problems, but the entire world's problems. When I know I'm going out, I know I'm going to start with calling for a ride. One shot at a time. Buzz driving is drunk driving. Cut. Yeah. No, that was great. So. You sure? You guys happy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's great. Easy day, man. Thank you so much. Totally, yeah. I really uh, appreciate it. Do you want us to sign your guitar? No. I mean, we no, we we'll totally do. We'll yeah, sign it's fine. It. We'll be, we'd be happy. Sorry, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta run. Good to see you guys. Thanks. We should have asked for his signature. Recycling is easy to overlook. We don't think about the impact our waste has on our landfills, economy, and environment. However, that's changing in Colorado as we work towards becoming leaders in erasing the waste. Rinsing and recycling glass bottles and jars makes an impact that sustains local businesses, workers, and families. Get recycling tips and take the pledge. No glass in the trash at erasethewasteco.org. Good afternoon. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us for this unusual, yet really, really fun and um, uh, event. I'm We've been working on this for a while, and um, so we're just thrilled to have everybody here. I'm Todd Davidson. I'm the Director of Elections, and I'd like to introduce our elected clerk and recorder, Paul Lopez. Thank you, and uh, thank you, Todd. Thank you, everybody who's here today uh, joining us. This is actually a, a, a pretty cool event. It's been a, a little while in the making, and I do want to... Um, just to acknowledge all of our staff, our hardworking staff with our Denver Elections Division, uh, Office of the Clerk and Recorder here in Denver. I truly, it's, it's a truly an honor to represent um, you as your, your clerk, but also to represent uh, these, uh, these true civil servants who have been working, uh, protecting our democracy, making sure that everybody, no matter what um, part of the city you live in, no matter the zip code you call home, no matter the language you speak, or the ability that you have. Um, we all want folks to be able to have equal access to the ballot box. Democracy is about participation. So knowing that we have an election, the general election coming up on November 8th, make sure that you're registered to vote. Um, you can do that online uh, by visiting us at denvervotes.org and also denvervota.org in Spanish. Um, I got to tell you that um, in addition to this, I'd like to uh, introduce our, um, our artists. We, one of the things that we did 
um, with our um, with our elections division is have a partnership uh, with uh, with with communities that work with people with disabilities. Um, one of the things that we wanted to do today is to really display and showcase this new accessible I Voted sticker. Um, it's a big thing here in Denver. Stickers are a big thing. People literally will come to go vote to get their sticker. And by the way, if you vote um, by mail, uh, which we also send to your ballot automatically by mail, you will get your sticker. Um, if you sign up for ballot tracks, uh, what we used to do in the past is give you a sticker digitally. So you make sure that you do get that sticker. We've had variations of stickers all over the place and all over the country you're going to see different stickers. They're little badges of honor that show that you participated. Um, it, you know, folks put them, I've seen them on their jackets, I've seen them on laptops, I've seen them on clipboards, I've seen them on wine glasses, I've seen them on stop signs, some of you, I, I know who you are. Um, I've seen them on coffee mugs, on, even on their dog's nose. It is absolutely cute, you name it, they're everywhere. So why spend time on a sticker, right? Well, I tell you why. The sticker is always a way for voters who have low vision or are blind to be able to share in that pride as well. Um, we are proud of the partnerships that we have within the community, especially the, the partnerships that we have with, the, with folks, uh, with communities of, of disability, of people with disabilities, excuse me. The sticker was designed by Chloe Duplessis. Duplessis, as they say in Louisiana. That's right. She is locally based and is legally blind. The sticker includes Braille and American Sign Language, which makes it easier and also inclusive of the broader community of people with disabilities. I wanted to bring you up here and stand next to me, Chloe. I want folks to understand and meet the artist behind this. So we worked with her to be able to develop this sticker, but also it is a true work of art. Not to say that our stickers in the past haven't been. My favorite is the one that we never showed with the Lucifer Mustang on it. We'll try to get permission one day to have that, but that's absolutely one of my favorites. So our elections advisory committee is a committee that we have that consists of various external stakeholders, including uh, political parties, elected officials, voter ad advocacy groups, um, and then community groups as well too. To have uh, representation and input from the Denver Commission for People with Disabilities and Disability Law Colorado. In Denver, we always strive to be as voter-centric as possible. We want not only want to make it easier for you to vote, but we do everything around the voter. We make sure that no matter what part of Denver you live in, like I said before, no matter what zip code you live in, what ability you have, what, what language you speak, we want to make it equally um, uh, accessible. So that's basically our mantra. A couple of voters who are blind participated in the pilot of our voting system in 2015 and provided feedback on the accessibility of the ballot marking devices. Based on that feedback, we worked with our voting system vendor to move from a joystick-based 
assisted device to an audio tactile interface. Over the years, we worked with Denver TV8 uh, to create a series of ASL videos. And these are videos to make sure voters who are deaf or hard of hearing um, knew exactly how to vote within the mail ballot model. Now remember, we mail your ballots. Um, you get those 23 days before an election. 22 days before an election. I'm sorry. I the, the number three because of all, you know, good old Russell Wilson. Um, stuck in my head. And also because we have Russell Wilson in our, in our showcase because we took him from Seattle. Um, that's a little bit of a tangent, but 22 days we send that ballot to you. You have 22 days to be able to vote. Dropbox, we have 43 of them now, all around the, uh, the city for the November 8th election. We have 37 vote centers that you can pick, pick from and come in person to vote. Or you can put postage on your mail-in ballot and just return it to us. Now you make sure that you sign that ballot. That's absolutely critical. It's so easy to vote here in Denver. Right? And we want to make that, that ease of access universal. Um, over the years, like I said, we, we worked with TV8 to be able to create those videos. So you can tune into that. You can also visit us on our website at denvervotes.org uh, to learn how to vote. The other thing is that we have a new voter mobile, a mobile voter coach that is going to be visiting various sites around the city. It's equipped with an accessible lift so that voters with limited mobility can vote inside the coach as opposed to an adjacent tent where they're experienced with our old mobile vote center. We want to make access as equal as possible, even down to the sticker. And in doing that, and in working with Chloe, we were able to create a pretty amazing sticker. So um, as far as the gen, I don't know if you want to say a few words about this, uh, this sticker yourself, because you are the artist. I'd love to. Thank Absolutely. You. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for your energy and your time today. As you mentioned um, so uniquely, today is a very unusual event. But I find that unusual things are what make us all so special. And if you're someone navigating disability, oftentimes the thing that is unusual about you can leave you feeling invisible. That's why I commend you all today for having the heart and commitment to focus on something as small as your sticker. Because as someone who hasn't always been legally blind, I remember going to vote as a relatively young woman. And I remember that badge of honor and putting that sticker on my t-shirt and walking out. And that entire day, everyone I saw, everyone I encountered knew that I was exercising my right to vote. It means so much. The little things mean so much. The unusual things mean so much. And this sticker, I hope, will allow all of us to have a little bit more pride in what it means to be able to vote. And to honor those persons that navigate so many different circumstances so that we could have that right to vote. This particular sticker took 32 designs. We originally started with four. There were several revisions and color samples and everything you see is very intentional. So when we unveil the sticker, I want you to take it in and take it to heart. Now, there is braille on the bottom of the, of the individual stickers, of course, for persons who are fully blind. And there will be bright pigmented colors 
that I use in the sticker. And those are specifically used for persons like myself who are legally blind or low vision. So you may have a genetic condition like I do, or you may be someone who is in a different season of life and may have macular degeneration. No matter your circumstance, these colors will be a lot easier for you to receive with your natural eye. And as someone who is really focused on accessibility in her work, last year I had the privilege of partnering with the Rhino Art District to create the first ever mural in the history of Denver of that scale with my co-creator, Valerie Rose, who is half deaf. That partnership is what spurred my commitment to ensuring that everything I create moving forward, not only honor persons who were blind, low vision, but also persons who are hearing impaired. It's one of the small ways that I can ensure that everyone feels seen and heard. Thank you so much for sharing this historic experience. Today, I believe we are the first sticker in the country to have all three. That's pretty cool, I'm just saying. Pretty awesome. Well, uh, let me get on the other side without Let's do it. further ado. I feel like I'm on Price's Riders. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our first ever.
Good day and welcome to the September 16th meeting of the Citizen Oversight Board. It's been a minute um, as the board used uh, a previous meeting uh, to conduct the first wave of our strategic planning for the upcoming uh, years and uh, with the holidays. So appreciate everybody joining us today, including um, Interim Police Chief Ron Thomas, who uh, we welcome to the position and, and are eager to uh, get to know you and um, engage with you today. Um, I'll skip uh, board business uh, till the end of the meeting as, as we're still working on a, a quorum, but um, just wanted to give the community a, a quick highlight on where we are with monitor hiring before we turn it over to um, discussion with the interim chief. Um, so we, uh, as the community probably knows, we posted the position at the beginning of August um, we have been warned that August is a very challenging month for recruitment as school starting and you know it's a very uh, transitional time of year for folks and so not the best month for recruiting. We are continuing to keep the position open as we saw August was a tough month for recruiting. Um, we are waiting till we uh, get to a certain number of uh, you know, really high quality candidates before we close uh, and begin to process um, applicants. So that's sort of where we are is, um, you know, waiting for a, a few more folks. And, and we have an indication that, you know, a, uh, a number of candidates have reached out and expressed interest. And so we're, we're just kind of waiting for that to finalize. At that time, um, the recruiter will begin to sort of process through applications. We'll give, you know, the top candidates to the screening committee, who will um, then begin to conduct interviews. The screening committee is obligated to give uh, at least three candidates to the board who will then conduct interviews and then we'll move into a public process from there. Um, so similar to the last time, what's a little bit different about uh, where we are with this time of year is that uh, we are shortly about to get into um, council budget proceedings um, and we have a council member on our screening committee. And then we're about to get into a midterm election cycle. And so from a public engagement standpoint, we wanna be sensitive to what else is happening in the environment uh, and what people may be participating in leading up to November elections. Um, and so we may want to have our public engagement after that time, depending on where we are. So just giving folks a little bit of the landscape um, and timing of, of what's happening there, but um, we're feeling good about you know, where we are with the recruitment. August was gonna be a hard month. It was a hard month for recruitment and, and we expect that to pick up now. Um, so, uh, with that, I, I welcome all of our board members to the meeting and, uh, would like to establish a quorum, um, and, um, I'm going to move quickly into, um, board business now that, um, we've got our fifth member on board. Uh, so if, if the board had an opportunity to review the minutes from our last meeting, I uh, appreciate a motion to approve those. So move. Great. Uh, all in favor, aye. All right. Aye. Aye. Um, any opposed? Great. Uh, the more motion passes. Um, so Julia, other... to, to clarify, yep. that would be all of the minutes, correct? All yes. from uh, from our last meeting and then from the strategic plan, both strategic planning sessions, correct? Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. I should have articulated that. Um, uh, a couple of other things I want to highlight. Uh, we are a strong and mighty board, uh, and we are down a couple of uh, board members as uh, a few uh, board members have had um, some transitions to other city boards or um, life events that are um, meaning that they're uh, stopping their service on our board. So we currently have three board seats. 
uh, available that community members can apply for. The process for applying is uh, listed on our website. It can be long and we are working on improving that. Um, so like your commitment to that is, is worth it because I'll tell you what, the, the problems that we're working on on this board are also long um, and hard to, to do. So if you can make it through the recruitment, you've got what it takes to, to help on the board. Um, so please apply if you're interested. Please um, send the openings to um, you know other community members who you think might be a great fit. Um, we're excited about uh, additional members coming on. Um, last thing I'll say is that uh, a few board members on, on uh, this meeting today will be part of um, a 50th anniversary celebration for uh, Servicios de la Raza. Um, and there's a cookout tomorrow at uh, Chiefy Park and um, we will have a booth along with OIM. Um, and so if you have questions, comments, feedback, concerns, um, or just wanna meet members of the board, uh, we'll have somebody there pretty much all day um, at the event. So thanks to the board members who will be there, really excited about that and um, you know, excited to get back into community at this point. Um, so uh, with that, I will uh, transition. Uh, any board member questions on the, the topics that I just covered? I know I went through those quickly, okay. Um, let's transition to our conversation with um, Interim Chief Ron Thomas. Uh, welcome to our meeting. We are um, eager to get to know you, as I said. Um, if you would like to make any opening remarks, we could start there or I'm happy to just you know dive into dialogue with you, however you'd like to proceed. Uh, you know, the only opening remark uh, that uh, I'd like to, to begin with is, you know, certainly I hope that tomorrow you guys have some snacks or something at your uh, at your booth because I plan to stop by. Um, you know, uh, I'm 33 year veteran of the Denver Police Department um, uh, began back before there was ever civilian oversight. Uh, certainly have welcomed civilian oversight. I understand the value and the necessity of civilian oversight, so it's not something that I'm uh, afraid of something I think is very valuable for not just the police department, but the community as well. Um, excited to enter this new role as, as chief of police um, and plan to, to uh, establish and maintain strong relationships with all uh, organizations and, and members of the community. That's great. Thank you. Um, and, you know, recognizing that this is the last year of a mayor's term, it's a, a challenge to step into this role and um, appreciate your willingness to do that. Um, you know, it's it's not every person who's going to take take a job for a year knowing that it, you know, in the end. So um, I, I guess I'll start us off with a question, which is, you know, I was sort of reading back through um, the uh, press event that that you did in, in your nomination um, by the mayor and and you said something that really struck me which was you know somebody asked I think what what do you want the police department to be and and you said something like I want it to be what the the people want it to be and and I guess I was going to ask you a little bit more about that like what's your perception of what's needed what what are people asking for um, of the department and you know how do you perceive that so, you know, my, my perception is that, you know, we, we do have a lot of work to do relative to uh, improving our image, improving our, you know, public trust in our, in our relationship with, with community as a whole. You know, I, I recognize that there are some communities that we have very strong and positive relationships uh, within, but then other communities, particularly marginalized communities where we don't. And so... I want to kind of even that out, you know, so that so that there is a, a positive perception uh, across the broad spectrum of, of communities, 
and and I want you know the you know I, I want our department to kind of meet uh, you know the needs and desires of community. Um, just a follow up to that, you know, have you started meeting with community members? You know, what are those conversations like? And can, can you say a little bit more about that? I, I have. So I've, I've met with uh, uh, a number of, of community groups. I, I met with the Jewish community, uh, a number of uh, Hispanic community groups. I've, I've gone to, uh, to cab meetings and other organized uh, uh, groups. Can, you know, I, I plan to, to meet with others in the next uh, week or so. I uh, plan to reach out to, you know, Dr. Davis and others that are, you know, that are able to, you know, kind of galvanize uh, folks together to, you know, to, to, to come together and, and, uh, you know, ask questions. And so I can hear from, from community exactly what it is that they want from police. I certainly have my own perspective, but I actually want to hear uh, from community exactly what, uh, what they want. Great. Um, I'll ask one more question then uh, turn it over to board members for, oh, Stefan, I see your hand up. Go ahead. Did you want to finish, Julia? I didn't want to cut you off. I can ask it later. Okay. So, Chief, uh, th thank you um, uh, for for being with us today. Um, you you mentioned that you know, uh, you want to balance things out um, in terms of you know, there are communities that the police have strong relationships with, and other communities, disadvantaged communities, where the relationships are are, are not are not strong. In your view, and I know, and I, it's great that you're out there getting input. I mean, you know, we think that's critical. Um, in your view, what do you think needs to be done? What steps do you feel need to be done to improve the relationship, the relationships with certain disadvantaged communities? Well, you know, I, I think um, the, the the first thing I think is well, maybe not the first thing, but uh, what what comes to mind is is um, you know equity. I, I think that I think that there is an expectation, a reasonable expectation for equity and and, and consequence. Um, you know, equity in, in, you know, the, the, you know, the style of policing. Um, I also think that it's important, particularly in disadvantaged communities that there is, and this is something I've already had conversations with internally with, with our own uh, uh, department members about the need to be sensitive to other folks lived experience. Um, a perfect example uh, of that in my mind, maybe uh, a lot of you are familiar with the fact that uh, Tay Anderson, uh, school board uh, representative Tay Anderson was uh, uh, stopped uh, for a traffic offense, uh, speeding through a school zone. And there was an interaction that I think that uh, if you were to look at that interaction, uh, you, I think initially maybe to, the, to most casual observers, it would appear as though the officer was very polite um, very professional um, in his interaction with uh, with Mr. Anderson, um, but he does make one comment, um, and uh, uh, that I completely understand uh, why that upset uh, Mr. Anderson. And the comment was, you know, he he he, he um, you know, the the things that he was doing, his interaction with the officer, you know, he made it very clear that he was. Concern for his own safety and 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 uh, commented on the fact that you know black men in America you know get shot uh, during traffic stops and the officer's response to that I um, I think it was um, just kind of an uneducated response and, and maybe a, a, a thought that that didn't come with a lot of forethought he said he said well sir that's a myth or something to the, along those lines and 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 I you know I, I'd like to think that what he meant by that was 
That's not going to happen here. That doesn't happen in Denver, Colorado. Um, that's not something that you need to worry about. But certainly, I can understand how that comment felt to to Mr. Anderson. How that how that seems to devalue his you know his his uh, his true fears, his lived experience. And so, I think it's it's very important for. Uh, our officers on the street engaging with folks to, to, to really understand or at least be sensitive to people's lived experience uh, as, as they're dealing with them. Thank you, Chief. Um, I was just going to ask, you know, I'm, I'm happy to actually go back to the um, the area that you just sort of keyed into. So, you know, I think where the board's at, where the community's at in a large part is sort of, you know, we have large systems issues to fix. Um, you know, the creation of the police in the first place, the manifestation of that over time, right? These sort of systems of um, oppression and, and white supremacy and how that manifests in the daily lives of, you know, community members and particularly community members of color. And, you know, I just, I, I'm interested in your perspective on that and, and you know, what's the system's work that needs to be done with, with DPD and, you know, recognizing you have one year, potentially more uh, to do that, but like, what's your role in that? And, you know, how do you, how do you think about that? Well, you know, I mean, my, my understanding and perception is that, you know, first of all, I, I do think that that all communities, including communities of color do want police. I mean, studies have shown that even communities of color either want the, the, the same, the same, amount of police or maybe even more police. And, uh, and I think that's real. And, um, but I think at the same time, they want better police. You know, I, I think they want better policing. So yeah, I think we need to, to understand what that means and understand how to deliver that. And I think that, you know, that a much more, uh, much more uh, well-educated and professional police department, I think speaks to a lot of that. Uh, so those are directions that I intend to, to go. Um, and again, you know, I, I think understanding, uh, you know, folks' lived experience is, a, is is something that I think that we can do to communicate that we, uh, you know, that, that, that we are interested in meeting the needs and, and concerned of the needs of community. Um, uh, I, I kind of lost my train. Can you restate your question? Because that might jog my memory. It's a, it's a, it's a big question, you know. Yeah. Uh, the Denver Police Department, along with all police departments, have a history of uh, you know, white supremacy, yeah. structural racism, right, in yes. their creation and in their, you know, activities uh, sure. from the dawn of time to now. Sure. Um, and so, you know, what's what's the work um, that needs to be done in DPD yeah. specifically, right? Like yeah. we could talk about like, what is policing, right? But yeah. I, you have a role for the yeah. police department and, you know, what do you perceive as your role in that? And then what is the work um, perhaps? That yeah, yeah. And again, I think again, that gets back to, you know, equity of outcome. I think that, I think that that's, you know, uh, something that, uh, important to establish uh, and maintain. I think that, you know, that, you know, we, we need to be responsive to, to crime. We need to hold those accountable that uh, they're engaged in criminal uh, events, but there needs to be uh, equity uh, relative to outcomes, you know, um, and so that's that's something that I really want to, to, to dig into and make sure that that's something that we're meeting. 
it, you know, something that I think the DA's office is, has has already recognized a need for. They've got a you know front facing dashboard now where they can where they're you know publishing you know uh, outcomes so that so that they can you know get to and maintain and and, and show uh, the public that that the equity of outcome is is certainly a goal of theirs. Happy to hear that. Um... Having worked on that in other communities, I'm happy to partner uh, in any way possible on that. Uh, Karen, I see you're off mute. Would you like to ask a question? I would. Um, good morning, Chief. Good morning. Um, my question goes to the uh, conversation that you anticipate having with Dr. Davis. I'm actually feeling uh, happy that you're going to have that conversation sooner as opposed to later. And I imagine that he will be uh, revisiting with you the list of recommendations that the Reimagining uh, Policing Committee came up with. I, I want to hear what your attitude is about those recommendations in terms of whether or not you're going to spend time reviewing them or you're going to just continue uh, implementing them. Where will your, where will your uh, focus be with regard to those recommendations? So um, I, I am familiar with the recommendations. I actually spent time on the on the committee uh, for a period of time before uh, the director of safety at the time chose to, to remove uh, police department involvement from that. Uh, but I have read the recommendations. There are a lot of those recommendations which we have uh, fulfilled. And I know that, uh, that the Department of Safety in the city is, is looking at continuing to uh, to fulfill a, a number of those recommendations. So uh, so my, my desire really is uh, recognizing that 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 um, you know that these are you know community-led community formed initiatives I really uh, uh, intend to continue to engage and continue to work towards uh, to you know accomplishing and meeting a lot of those recommendations. Uh, Dr. Davis and I actually have a, a very good relationship. I, I first met him and began working with him uh, when we uh, initiated the, uh, the data collection project, uh, probably, my goodness, uh, 10 years ago, uh, where we worked on a plan to begin collecting uh, uh, data uh, relative to, to uh, police stops. Um, you know, that, that work has, has stopped, uh, but uh, I'm happy to say that we are going to continue to collect that data, um, you know, consistent with, uh, with state mandates. Okay. Uh, Karen, did you have a follow-up or? Uh, you know, I could follow up with uh, whether or not you think that there ought to be additional uh, budgetary funds committed to the recommendations particularly the training uh, parts of the recommendations. Uh, certainly, I mean, you know, the, the, the budget I think is, is, is set, it's the mayor's budget, it's not my budget. Uh, and I think that, um, that, that the mayor has appropriately, you know, distributed funds to support, uh, you know, all of the city's needs and certainly the police department's challenges. Uh, but certainly um, I would be supportive of of uh, uh, training so that we can get to where, uh, so that we can meet those uh, community needs and expectations. I'd, I'd certainly be supportive of uh, funding being directed to us, uh, you know, being able to, to, to get there. 
I know that uh, training, yeah, uh, Terrence, we'll go to you. I know, I know training is something that we will uh, happily bring up with you <laughs> as we've had many, many conversations uh, with uh, Chief Hazen about this. And, you know, it, it always felt like there was a commitment to a training um, but not a follow through in that happening. Um, and, you know, the rationale was always staffing issues. And, you know, if we're going to, uh, you know, employ a police officer for a day, would we like them on the street or would we like them in a training? And, you know, I think we continue to see issues with training that manifest. And so, I'm yeah, and that's fair. About- I mean, I, you know, I, I, I do recognize that training is very, very important. I mean, we want, you know, uh, the 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 best most well trained uh, you know police officers out there, um, but it is a balance. I mean, you know, certainly we need to get them that training, and 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 you know, I can commit to getting officers the training that 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 we feel that we need, and that the community uh, has demonstrated that they need. Um, but we still have to strike that balance because you know, we, we we have to provide uh, the, the the level of service that everybody expects as well. So uh, you know interested in input on, on how we get there, uh, certainly, um, but uh, never never mistake the fact that it takes us longer than others would like uh, to get training with the fact that we just really don't want to do it because I think, you know, I, I don't want to speak for, for Chief Payson, but certainly for me, um, any, any delay is not, um, uh, shouldn't, shouldn't be construed as, as, as a reluctance as much as it's just, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to do it um, with the staffing that we have with, you know, with, with the expectation relative to response times and reduction in crime is concerned. And I'm hopeful that uh, as we continue to hire officers, we've got 45 or so starting on Monday, um, as we continue to add officers and, and relieve some of that workload from our current staff, that we'll be able to, 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 to ramp up our, our training efforts. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Um, uh, thanks, Julia. Congratulations, Chief, and best wishes for you um, thank as you. you start this new adventure. I think Julia asked most of my question already, but I wanted to follow up briefly with um, when you talked about better educated officers. Um, what is that? What do you think that looks like? Because I know there's some departments where there's a formal education requirement. There's some research that shows that if you have officers that even have a two-year degree, it, it decreases the risk of use of force, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just trying to get an idea of uh, how you envision that. Yeah, so so I'm familiar with all of that research. And um, so um, our current contract, well, the, the, the current, the, the contract that's in front of city council right now actually speaks to our value in education. Um, you know, I, I think it would be difficult for me to, you know, when I need 188 officers in the next year or so, it would be difficult for me to place an education requirement on hiring. I think that would be, uh, I think that would limit my ability to, to, to hire, but um, we are incentivizing higher education. So the, the current contract um, actually incentivizes uh, uh, financially uh, uh, associate's degrees, ambassador's degrees, and I think ultimately we'll even get to master's degrees being incentivized. Uh, the other thing uh, is that we have recently um, partnered with the uh, University of Denver uh, to provide, uh, I think, uh, cohorts of 25 four times a year, so about 100 officers, 
we're, I think we're going to start with frontline staff and kind of eventually move uh, higher in the ranks, providing um, providing leadership training, uh, which I think uh, will be valuable as they progress in their careers, but also very valuable as they engage with citizens, even at lower levels. Thank you. Sure. Stefan, go ahead. Yeah, Chief, I want to follow up on, yeah, I guess my earlier question and then the questions of my colleagues here. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with the statement that you made a little while ago. Yes, that communities of color do want police, but they want better police. They want better educated and better trained police. I completely yes. agree with that. Um, and and Terrence's question to you and your response about what what better educated police force means. Um, and I think initial training is critical, obviously, before you get somebody goes on the street. But continuing training, including the leadership training that you just yeah. alluded to, is also critical because talk about real life experiences. Well, police have real life experiences while they're doing their job. Yes. And, it's, and it's very important while they experience those that they handle those better. Yes. including the incident that you just mentioned that involved Mr. Anderson um, um, in terms of not making statements like that. Um, right. So, you know, what I'm wondering, I have a really specific question. We had an earlier meeting and look, there's a, all kinds of, of training that would be beneficial, but um, <laughs> to reference the recent uh, incident with the shooting in Lodo, yes. some, I, I, we were informed and I just want to confirm one way or the other, what sort of firearms training do Denver police officers get? And is that, is it online training, solely online training, or do they get firearms training actually, you know, using what, you know, using weapons at, at a range, et cetera. Can you, can you uh, clarify that the type of firearms training that police officers are getting and have been getting for the past couple of years? Certainly. So um, first of all, um, we have extensive firearms training, live fire firearms training in the academy, um, more hours, and I can't, I can't quote for you the, the, the number of hours, but I can, I can assure you that more hours than post even requires. Um, and so, so that's what we get uh, on the front end. Um, be, behind that, there is, um, there is, uh, you know, qualifications. So, so it Twice a year, officers have to, 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 to uh, shoot to qualify, um, and they have to have a, a high passing score in order to, to, to qualify. If they, if, they, if they don't meet that high qualification score, then there is a remedial training that is prescribed for those, uh, for those officers. Um, there's also a, uh, a, there's a, there's a, I think it's a state mandate that, um, and, and Terrence, you might have to help me with this, uh, relative to perishable skills. So um, perishable skills being a shooting, driving, and arrest control. And I think there needs to be uh, 12 hours uh, of, of those particular skills um, every year. And some of that certainly is achieved through, um, through online training. But, uh, but other are achieved through live, uh, live fire events. The other thing that I think is, is helpful for us, and this is something that we're uh, 
that we're preparing to push officers through now is uh, many of you have probably heard of our virtual system, which is our virtual reality system where people are using simulated weapons to, to, uh, uh, to, to fire at, um, you know, kind of in a virtual reality environment. And so it puts people in those shoot, don't shoot scenarios so that we can evaluate um, their ability to appropriately decide when to use force and when not to, uh, you know, how, you know, evaluate their, their ability to de-escalate situations. Uh, and, and so um, understanding the need to, to, to continue to provide people, though, you know, that, that continuous training on making those decisions, you know, because those, those, those decisions, certainly they could happen any day, but they don't happen every day. And so that's something that we recognize that we do need to uh, continue to have officers exposed to, uh, you know, those situations so that they can, so that they can um, internalize that and, 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 and have a better chance of making the, the, the not, not the best decision, but the decision I think that, that the public expects them to make at, at the time. What, what did you call that training, Chief? So it's virtual training. So, uh, so we have a, we have actually two now. So we have two virtual systems. They're essentially a virtual reality system where people, where officers take a simulated weapon and they're in kind of a 360, uh, you know, video environment, and they are looking at a scenario that plays out in front of them. And many of these are developed based upon real life uh, scenarios. It could be active shooter scenarios. It could be, you know, uh, officers respond on a domestic and somebody appears in the doorway and then they produce something. And, and so they're, you know, we, we need to evaluate what, it, you know, are, you know, are they producing something that's a threat to us? Are they producing a cell phone or a driver's license or something like that? So, so, you know, you know, really putting those officers in a, in, you know, as best we can, a true life situation where they have to determine is this a situation where um, where I need to use force uh, in order to protect myself or someone else, or is this a situation where um, it, it's not a force situation? It's maybe a, a, an opportunity for me to de-escalate. Uh, so you know, you know, it's it's something that that officers go through in the academy. There's also annual uh, mandatory training that has a component of um, uh, these shoot don't shoot scenarios connected to it as well. Um, speaking of shooting, uh, can you talk a little bit about your perspective on, you know, sort of violent crime in the city um, and the, you know, root causes of that? Um, you know, what what's your theory on well, what's happening here? Well, so uh, violent crime, um, as we know, is up in Denver, uh, up uh, across the state, uh, up across the country. You know, so so violent crime is up. Um, Colorado was actually one of the worst states relative to all crime, including violent crime. And uh, we weren't always there. Uh, you know, we, we have, you know, kind of recently within the last three years or so uh, gotten to that place. And, and, uh, and I don't know that it's really necessarily all that important how we got there, whether it was, uh, whether it was, um, you know, legislative changes that, that, uh, you know, that, that, that caused that to happen, whether it was um, uh, progressive prosecutor, what it doesn't, to me, it doesn't really matter how we got there. I think, you know, the challenge is laid out in front of me. The crime is, it has increased and, and we need to address that. 
Uh, I do have some some uh, some thoughts on on how to address that. I mean, focusing more on one the hotspots where where uh, you know where, where crime is occurring, and and you know I, I think people um, I think tense up when I say hotspot because I think they 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 think we're about to over police uh, a neighborhood. I really don't intend to do that. Um, we may have increased presence, but that doesn't necessarily mean increased contact. Um, but certainly presence, hoping, hoping that presence provides a, a sense of security, um, but also working with our city partners to really uh, do some uh, infrastructure changes that I think are, are, are helpful. You know, I think the mayor, in fact, in his uh, budget address talked about how we are, are going to be um, addressing hotspots from a public harms uh, perspective. And so I think a, a lot of those things can be helpful in uh, reducing crime, particularly violent crime. Uh, Chief, do you think we have a gang problem? Um, that, to me, that's a nuanced uh, answer. I mean, do we have gang members that cause problems? Yes. Um, do, I, do I think that we have a, uh, you know, a, a problem with gangs that, uh, that, you know, that we perceive to have had in the 80s and 90s? That's not my perception. Um, but my perception is more so that uh, we have a lot of... Um, uh, young individuals that uh, have access to guns, and because of uh, you know, I, I think the you know the adolescent minds just aren't making good decisions uh, while in the possession of guns, and so I think that has what has has exacerbated our our problem relative to youth-involved violent crime. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think if I if I could just add a little bit more to, to that, um, you know, I, I think you know when, when I think you know, uh, you know, I, I was I've been a police officer since 1989. When I think of, of of you know gang violence, I think of you know the traditional Bloods and Crips and and um, and uh, you know territorial um, you know battles and, and and battles over you know what what, what color your um, your you're, you're wearing much of the violence that uh, that occurs now um, is uh, is actually actually emanates from 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 uh, connections and comments that are made online um, you know you know perceived slights that 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 occur whether in person or in line or online um, and not the traditional you know you're wearing a different color than me Uh, Chief Thomas, thank you, and I just wanted to um, say thank you for stepping into that into the role that you have. Obviously, um, as everyone has mentioned, um, big shoes to fill. So I really appreciate you your willingness to step into this as the interim. Um, can you talk a little bit about? Um, there was just a lot of sort of political debate around the the fentanyl bill and changing sort of like felonizing fentanyl versus other drugs. And, and your perspective on that, and if it if it touches at all, um, sort of in the the older drug wars where the, you know certain types of crimes uh, became sort of felonized, and, and how that uh, tended to a, attack communities of color, and if you have any thoughts about how all that went down this spring in the legislature. 
yeah. So I'm really kind of of two minds uh, there. I mean, um, I, I am sensitive to to um, things that impact uh, communities of color, um, but at the same time, um, I, I understand the devastation that uh, that that comes from particularly fentanyl, methamphetamine, um, understanding that not just one pill can kill, but half a pill can, can, can kill and has uh, in the state of Colorado and in Denver specifically. And, um, you know, and, you know, and uh, I'm certainly, you know, willing to debate, but respectful of other people's uh, opinions on this. But um, I really do uh, believe that, um, that, uh, that, uh, penalizing folks at a felony level is more of a deterrent to uh, to, to crime than a, a lesser level of, of, of punishment. Um, and uh, again, I'm I'm not uh, you know I, our, our focus should not be uh, users um, or, or folks that have you know uh, substance misuse issues. I, our focus should primarily be on those individuals. That are dealing, that are that are uh, you know, preying on uh, our vulnerable populations. So I think that's where our focus should be. But you know, my my you know sort of law and order perspective is that um, is that um, you know I, I, I think I think that that um, that the, the the stiffer penalty providing more of a deterrent uh, is is appropriate. I appreciate that. And I guess following up on that a little bit, what do you imagine or envision as sort of the police department's role in um, treatment-based options? I mean, because a lot of times it's, I, I wish it was as you know easy to determine, you know, this person's a user, that person's clearly a dealer. But a lot of times in the community, people start dealing because they can't support their habit or they're able to keep a little for themselves. So it's not a bright line. So what is sure. what is the police department sort of role in all of that and identifying people who need treatment or, or maybe started down that path of, of dealing and that kind of that kind of scenario? Right. Well, we, we certainly need more support options for folks that have substance misuse issues. But I do think that there is space. And I think we're already taking advantage of, of this space, uh, you know, Connecting with individuals, you know, uh, coming into contact with individuals that are users, and providing them with options, you know, delivering them to the aid center, um, you know, using the solution center, you know, the lead program, substance use navigators. I think there are a lot of options for us that, that I actually think officers are uh, inclined to use uh, in order to direct those folks that we have identified as as users, so that they can, um, you know, so that they can. Uh, you know, be treated for their for their uh, addictions and their misuse habits, um, rather than you know, rather than punishing them criminally. Because really, again, uh, they're not they're not the target. Chief, um, <clears throat> follow up question relating to I guess training, but also relating to. The recommendations that came out of the independent monitors report um, 
that, that identified a number of failures in how the Denver Police Department handled the George Floyd protests mm -hmm. in the summer of 2020. Um, you know, no need to go through all that stuff in terms of, you know, there, you know, no accountability with respect to, you know, other jurisdictions coming in and making sure that we had agreements that were enforceable with those other jurisdictions, the, the, you know, the failure to, you know, keep track of non-lethal use of force that was used on protesters and the like. I, I, and I, it's my understanding that most of those recommendations have been or will be implemented. It's now been almost two years since that report was issued. Do you feel, and obviously we welcome your comments on any, on any of that, but do you feel that if a large scale protest happened today in the city of Denver, comparable to what happened in the summer of 2020, that the Denver police force and any, any outside help that they would get would, are, you know, are prepared to handle you know, a, uh, you know, nonviolent protests uh, in, a, in a much, in a much, in a much different and, and appropriate fashion. I have every confidence that, that, that our uh, approach and the outcomes will be much different. Uh, we, we've trained for it. We've, uh, we've adopted all of those recommendations. Uh, we have employed all of those uh, things in subsequent protests. Um, you know, we, it, you know, uh, it, it has slowed significantly, but there was a period of time where we had regular protests. Um, you know, uh, you know, after the Roe v. Wade decision, there were, there were protests. And so we have, uh, you know, confronted folks that have, have been inclined to exercise their First Amendment rights, while also being um, uh, opposed to uh, the police and, and, and voicing their uh, their um, opinions relative to our presence, uh, relative to our existence, even, um, and I think we've done that appropriately. Um, certainly not to the scale uh, that occurred those first four days of the George Floyd protest, but I'm confident that that our response will be better. Our response would be appropriate. I'm confident that our law enforcement partners that we have reestablished. Um, uh, mutual agreed, mutual agreement, mutual aid agreements with will also come support us, support us in the way that we expect, the way that the community expects. Thank you. Did you, do you have a follow-up, Stephen? Um, different question. Um, you know, obviously sure. alternative uh, ways of uh, responding to particular incidents. And, you know, you mentioned the lead program. I mean, we're very, we're familiar with that as well as the STAR program. Would like to get your views um, on, on those programs, the potential expansion of those programs and the like, in, you know, in order to, you know, basic, I, I think, you know, it's our, it's our view that many stops, and I assume it's yours as well, don't require a police response, but require a different type of response uh, that would be, you know, potentially less inflammatory, less likely to, to result in use of force, et cetera. Just like to have your views on these alternative, on these alternative programs. Huge fan of uh, alternative response. Huge fan of STAR. Uh, would love, you know, obviously uh, STAR is no longer uh, with the police department, uh, would certainly support continued expansion of STAR. Um, huge fan of the co-responders. We have 40 of them now. Um, that's, you know, a, a budgetary issue. Certainly would be supportive of a continued expansion of the, uh, the co-responder program. Outreach case coordinators, understanding that all of these things, uh, you know, create 
better responses. You know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll be the first one to acknowledge that we are not uh, expert at a lot of things, and that although we, you know, because of our 24/7 uh, response capacity, often get uh, called to as first responders to a lot of things that that uh, we're not expert in. Uh, I'm certainly uh, more than willing to partner with those who are experts, uh, have them either with us or have them responding uh, uh, in lieu of us. Uh, so a huge supporter of, of that, huge, huge supporter, quite honestly, in, in uh, various forms of, of uh, limiting uh, contact. Um, you know, I think there's a discussion going on right now about uh, whether or not uh, officers should be uh, uh, contacting folks for the sole purpose of enforcing jaywalking. Um, uh, I would say I, I'd be I'd be I'd be fine if somebody told me to to no longer enforce jaywalking unless there was some true um, uh, safety nexus uh, associated with that because. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, that, that there is, um, you know, I, I think that there are uh, opportunities for us to, to, to limit our, our engagement with folks, um, especially you know, negative engagements, I think is what I'm primarily referring to. Um, I think there are opportunities for us to limit those engagements without, uh, you know, uh, lowering our impact uh, on, on, on crime. Yeah, I, I, the, the recent incident, obviously it's outside your jurisdiction, but just highlighted this for me, just for the state was the, you know, the Clear Creek incident that happened, um, you know, that we just made, were made aware of where a man was clearly in, you know, mental health distress and, and had an encounter with police. And I know, I, I respect the fact you're not, that you will not comment on another jurisdiction and the like, but just a good example of having the right response would have saved somebody's life, my sure my opinion yeah sure yeah and i you know i you're right i won't comment on 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 another jurisdiction but i will i will tell you uh when the opportunities uh present themselves that i don't understand why the officer uh reacted that way yeah. um you know I, I wasn't there i didn't have all of the sensory perceptions that that particular officer had but you know um from, from my cursory viewpoint just like yours I can't imagine why uh, it escalated to that point. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Chief. Yeah, I, I know personally I'm getting tired of the officer was afraid mantra because people are afraid of officers, right? And so, you know, we have tipped the balance a little far on this. Um, just a question, you know, and, and maybe we'll, uh, you know, wrap up with one or two more. Appreciate, you know, all the time we've had with you today. Um, what I am not asking you to do is, you know, opine on your predecessor, but what I'm asking uh, in this question is, uh, you're a different person um, and can make different choices in this leadership role. So are there uh, choices that had been made in the past that you are immediately changing or, you know, any decisions made recently that you are kind of, you know, taking a different tact on? Well, um, I, I will say this. So um, I am not Chief Hazen. Uh, I, I am my own person. Um, uh, Chief Hazen is a good friend of mine, um, but um, I internalized 
internalize things differently. I react to things differently. Um, I certainly have fresh eyes on all of the challenges ahead of us. Um, I, I, I do um, uh, fashion myself as a builder of consensus and, and someone who is a, a collaborative worker. And so I really do look forward to collaborating with, with you all and with other uh, members of the public, other uh, community organizations. Um, and I, I, I uh, want to continue to do that. And, and, and I actually you know, kind of welcome uh, differing opinions uh, that, 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 that just doesn't uh, threaten or challenge me. Thank you. Uh, one, one or two last board member questions. Uh, Chief, I'm curious to know if you uh, basically will adopt the attitude of the city uh, and the mayor and the police department of, of the past in uh, dealing with the unhoused population in terms of contacting them without the uh, uh, intent to uh, uh, incarcerate them, but to simply move them along and to break up encampments without uh, you know, an understanding of what would happen at the time that you break up an encampment in terms of uh, providing uh, adequate services for those people that in that immediate crisis? So um, let, let, let me just say, and, and, and I, I recognize that there's argument uh, around this, but um, I really believe that the majority of the engagement between Denver police officers and members of the unhoused community is support. Uh, we're offering of services. We're encouraging people to to uh, to find uh, you know safe and uh, you know shelter options. Um, understanding that there are quite a few barriers out there. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've been to a number of encampments, and while I can uh, appreciate the, the challenge of someone being displaced from a place where they have kind of set up, uh, these encampments are not healthy, safe places to be. There are, there, there's a lot of things going on in these encampments, and so I, I don't think it's appropriate for the city to just allow them to, to persist. Now, um, you know, we are, you know, the Denver Police Department is not out, um, you know, pushing people around. You know, we are certainly, we, we're really just there to support the effort of uh, Dottie and DDPHE to, uh, to, to clean the encampment, um, continue to, you know, along with, uh, you know, the early intervention team uh, and, and others, to continue to offer support along the way, understanding that these folks do have to go somewhere and we're certainly hoping that they go to a more stable and safe situation. So, um, uh, you know, one thing that I, I, I can say, I do, I do have a meeting uh, scheduled here in the very near future with HOST. Um, it, that's an agency that I do uh, support. I do support uh, um, their direction to find uh, safe uh, housing options for folks that are that are experiencing homelessness. Um, we really uh, want 
uh, folks to, 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 to get off the street and, and find themselves in a safe situation, whether we're talking about safe from, from crime and victimization, whether we're talking about you know, safe from the elements, um, that, that's really, I think, the goal of the entire city. Um, and so I, I'm supportive of that. Uh, any other last board member questions? Otherwise, I could follow up with Karen's question with another question. Yeah, there's a comment about the fentanyl felonization in the Q&A, just in case no one's seen it yet. Uh, do you want to read that out loud? Oh, I didn't know I was volunteering, but okay. Um, it's from Elizabeth Epps. Oh, I've got to put my glasses on. Problem with aging. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Comment in that question, to be clear, fentanyl was not so much signaled out as it was a stepping stone to regressing on the failed war on drugs. They're coming back next session to refelonize all simple drug procession. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if there's any expectation for me to comment on that. I do want to say hello to my friend, uh, Elizabeth Epps, um, someone that I've known for, for uh, some time and, and been on some, some boards uh, with and, and unfortunately haven't seen uh, uh, recently, but certainly um, uh, want to, want to uh, say good luck on your campaign. Thank you. Um, just maybe one question to wrap us up and then we'll uh, give you the rest of your day. Um, you know, my perception, just looking at some math, uh, you know, there's estimations between 30 and 50,000 housing units that the city needs to start to address uh, the issue of folks experiencing homelessness today. And that the current city plans suggest that we'll have somewhere along the lines of 5,000 additional housing units based on the recent changes. So, you know, that, that leaves, you know, on the low end of 25,000 housing unit gap, on the high end, you know, 45,000 unit housing gap. And that's assuming the population, you know, sort of stays stable-ish um, and, you know, economic conditions remain the same. Um, you know, my personal perception is that's going to get worse. Um, and, and, you know, what, what is the department thinking about in terms of preparing for that? You know, it's not less people unhoused, it's, it's more people unhoused. And, you know, I don't know, personally, I'm getting tired of just big boulders being placed all over the city, right? It's like, this is not a solution. And moving people between the boulders is not a solution. And, you know, if this is getting worse, you know, how quickly can we scale these alternative programs or, you know, what, what do you have in mind to actually work on this? Well, I mean, I, I think that's really a charge for host and, and the mayor. And I certainly will support the things that, uh, that they uh, elect to do. Um, I, I think uh, from my perspective, uh, all we can continue to do is uh, provide support, um, provide options for folks, um, educate, uh, you know, kind of, um, be there in a compassionate sense and you know if there you know if there are more um, options and alternatives uh, out there more ways to, to direct people and encourage people towards uh, supportive housing uh, options or situations um, I want those uh, in the hands and in the minds of officers so that they can continue to have that uh, uh, compassionate interaction. 
Thanks, appreciate that. Um, and, and certainly not the last conversation we'll, we'll have on this topic. Um, well, you know, just again, you know, welcome to the position, uh, you know, from the board, we are eager to work with you, um, you know, uh, having just gone through the beginning of our strategic planning efforts, you know, we're committed to change in the city and, and we wanna work with the departments on, on seeing that change realized. Um, and so, you know, looking forward to open partnership and, and dialogue on, on these, you know, sort of big, structural issues that are that our city faces. Um, and, and thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Um, and you're and you're welcome to to drop off if you'd like. Okay. All right. okay. uh, <laughs> uh, no problem. Yeah, you don't have to wait around for us. Um, uh, interim monitor Crittenden, is there anything that you'd like to discuss in the um, public forum? I have a case, but it because it's still um, pending, uh, we would need to discuss it in executive session. Okay. Um, may I have a motion to move into executive session to discuss this open matter? So I'll move. move. Second. Second. I'm sorry. All in favor? Aye. Aye. All right. Uh, this meeting is adjourned. Appreciate everyone's time today and see you in the executive session. We all admire the frontline workers and first responders for their life-saving work. You too can help save a life. The simple act of blood donation takes only about an hour of your time, but it can mean the difference between life and death. For patients facing COVID, cancer, surgery, or trauma right now. In fact, every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs blood. Please help a patient in need by making an appointment to donate blood. Go to redcrossblood.org today. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. Beware of telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you. Call is threatening you with arrest or other legal action and demanding money are not from us. If you receive a call like this, hang up, do not provide them with any form of payment or information. Report the call at oig.ssa.gov.